0: I'm really sorry about that. I, I was trying to do a stream tonight and then I have this weird thing with the second screen. And so um, when I plug my computer in, I have all these bazillion photos on my desktop and it like fries the thing. And so I did it wrong and I tried to stop it and then restart it and um, it wasn't restarting properly. so. Anyway, I really apologize, but I guess I'm going to go ahead and still try to do this tonight. Uh, this is I did uh, chapter one last night of Oliver Riser's uh, World Sensorium, and I just thought I might take a minute before um, we get started uh, because I do have um, a, a video that I want to show, and so let me let me um, move to the picture within picture, and hopefully this. This will show the screen. Uh, this is a clip that I pulled um, earlier tonight. It's up on my channel. And it's of uh, a, a woman, her name is Allison. I think Duetman is maybe how she's she pronounces it. It's part of about an hour and a half talk that was put out by Protocol Labs. And uh, essentially she's the CEO of um, this Foresight Institute that is a project of Eric Dress. Drexler, he was a a key early nanotechnologist and evidently has now moved over to Oxford and is working on molecular computing. And so uh, her background is to sort of look at a lot of emerging tech and put it together. So she was doing this presentation for protocol labs. And so some of the stuff when I'm I'm talking about the world brain and this idea of using people as computational interfaces, which is gonna be part of the series that I'm gonna be posting later, Um, Essentially these three clips, it's about two minutes, about these different projects, I think help explain what this is gonna look like. And so I wanna put it out here so people can kind of process it. And again, I don't know exactly how it's all gonna look, um, but it gives you the sense of using non-traditional user interfaces for computing And then it talks about gamifying um, molecular engineering as a massive multiplayer role-playing game. And then it talks about using smart contracts as ways of structuring community, sort of these socio-technical systems. And then it goes on to um, talk about uh, essentially the network state, uh, which is something Sebs has talked about in the past, Anyway, this idea of networked states, that you create societies that exist digitally, and that those societies could be sort of computational mechanisms. So I'm gonna see if this will start and well. Something that um,
1: it's, has really blown me away. So this is uh, a presentation given at a workshop that we had um, this year, and it's really quite something. So basically it's um, here they're proposing to stimulate Small proteins by using a building, a physical building as a computer, and so you basically see people here using um, tables as computing surfaces, physical objects such as notepads and so forth that are captured by overhead cameras as the interface, and literally creating these molecules, moving them, about, moving them about with laser pointers, and kind of playing around with each other's molecules, but uh, physically.
0: Okay, so I just want to pause for a second and say, so she, what she's saying is that they have light, they have overhead cameras that are watching, and that they can play with physical materials as if they were part of a computational process. And so one of the things I wanna, I'm want to gonna raise is this issue of preschool and what happened with the Wildflower Montessori franchise that was backed by Semp Canbar of Cello. And that essentially, he, at the time, he was uh, in social computing at Uh, MIT Media Lab, and that he was making this Montessori preschool, and they were putting, as I mentioned multiple times, sensors in the children's slippers, and then also sensors in the room, uh, so that they could track how the children were interacting with different objects in the room. And so i think in some ways this is like an early pilot project of using a physical space and people as embodied agents in that space with sensor networks and actually in those schools they had artificial camera vision cameras on the ceiling watching the children and translating their activities in the classroom into leaderboards and so this is this interface between human and machine but the idea is that I'm assuming at some point it will become seamless. It will be like us having electricity in our homes and we don't really think about it, right? And so this is just a really new way of thinking about computation. And I think it's really important <laughs> um, to imagine what that means when people are essentially acting on behalf of computational systems. So later they're going to talk a little bit about massive um, multi-online role-playing games in computation systems. But I, as we finish out looking at this building that is being used, and it's actually in Oakland, uh, I looked it up, it's uh, Dynamic Land, Brett Victor of Dynamic Land, and it's in Oakland. And Oakland is a hotbed for so many of these impact finance, tech, uh, social impact accelerators, and this is also being in Oakland. And, and I think they're going to use it with children. So um, keep that in mind, the Wildflower Montessori.
1: Um, and so this is this kind of like idea that if we do physicality you have this kind of like shared mental um, mental map of what other people are working on Brett Victor dynamic land um um maybe a name for some of you doing is doing absolutely mind boggling work and has here partnered up uh, with, with Sean Douglas um and and you can look at this basically you can go to the lab and try it out it's uh, it's, it's pretty it's pretty fantastical <laughs> um and then you know here we come back to the more long-term goals of molecular nanotechnology. There was also at one of our workshops um, uh, this this year, and that's Eric Drexler who uh, founded Foresight. he's now at FHI. And uh, so he's basically thinking like, can we use massive multiplayer online gaming for complex molecular systems design? So could we create using a game engine like Godot, basically a system that is interesting enough for a bunch of people to pile in on an online game using real data, and helping people to create these more complex machines um, in a way that is fun. And so he's trying to outsource much of the work that people are currently doing in the lab. Um, And uh, and it's a project that is now uh, under development. And so I really uh, encourage you guys to to stay up.
0: All right, so I just wanna pause this for a second uh, and just reiterate that. So what she's talking about. Uh, Eric Drexler, uh, he was the one who founded the Foresight Lab. So she is now the CEO of this organization. He's in Oxford. Uh, It's important to know that both of them are affiliated with um, a concept called effective altruism. And some people may have heard uh, of it in relationship to the FTX scandal and uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, they were a part of this effective altruism milieu, <laughs> almost seems a bit like a cult, but it's sort of based in Oxford. And it's this philosophy of a scientific charity um, and this idea of it's going to be meshed with the public goods finance aspect um, and and big data analytics. So it's important to see that she is doing like she and Eric Drexler are both the nanotech space and the effective altruism, and it's all welded into the larger uh, crypto aspect. Now, if if you looked at the FTX scandal and what they were talking about is like oh he wanted to make more money so that he could give it away because he was just a misguided young guy who you know broke the rules so he could make money and, and be philanthropic and wasn't that pro- a, a problem right it was but it it's sort of in a poo poo dismissible aspect and they're not actually making the connection between this way of thinking about scientific charity that comes directly out of Bentham and then. A, a, adding that into that um uh, the the optimization protocols that are going to be linked to uh, like algorithms, like like public benefit algorithms, but t- tied to financial markets and tied to network sensor systems. And then potentially, who knows what they're going to do with nanotechnology later. But it's nothing to be dismissed. It's actually very, very significant because the way in which charity is going to be proposed is to manage people through cyber-physical systems in the name of a charitable enterprise, in the name of public good, in the name of cooperation. Only none of us agree to it, and we didn't actually understand what it was so let me keep going with that up to up to
1: speed on what on what on what they're working on Next one up, we have um, uh, human-to-human cooperation. And so this is something where many of you will feel at home. I will show a few familiar faces here. Um, the goal here really of this group is to increase, first of all, human-to-human cooperation. So what could it mean to really unlock our potential? Uh, this one is a name that I'm hoping most of you will recognize by now. And so Juan Benet really joined us to discuss this notion of Pareto Mechanism design. So, what would it look like if we could increase the human ability to engage in Pareto preferred interactions over time? And the way.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to pause here again. I had to look up what Pareto topianism was, and and that's how I found out about the their their ties to the effect of altruism. But it's all mathematical, and it's like a cone of potentiality. And they have the whole Alice and Bob, and Alice wants this, and Bob wants that, and sort of how they negotiate. But this idea is that there's some mathematical idealized place in in, in the system that is is that is the sweet spot of every good thing, right? And so they're going to engineer society to accomplish this task, to get people, um, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, to, so to get people and like using the digital public goods, using the smart contracts, using the physical world as a game to try to affect like this benthamic philosophic calculus. Um, but in that, you can see how th- the mechanisms that they're gonna use in the game are the things I've talked about, right? Like contract law, like, and these are going to be smart contracts. Um, and that'll, they'll, she'll get into that later, but this is Juan Benet protocol. So smart contracts, and then, the economics of it, right? So this is going to be tokenomics. This is gonna be engineered token economies and the way in which derivative products are in there. So that is the betting. And that's something that I really wanna bring out in the the, the, the series that I'm gonna be pushing out is this idea that in the future, everything is gonna become a betting market because this, this idea in, the web three space in the finance derivative space is that the market is the supreme arbiter of truth, right? And so everything becomes a commodity, everything becomes a bet. um, And everyone is betting on the game that is being played in the real world. Um, and, And the people who are playing the game may not even understand that the game that they're in as they're facilitating the gaming and the computation process. It's like layers upon layers upon layers. So let me just go. Back to this. Okay.
1: Way we can do that is using software, uh, already uh, to reshape really much of the mechanisms that human civilizations run on, and some of them include law, like contracts, rules, rights, and courts. And so you're all uh, and deeply intimately familiar with blockchain, smart contracts. So that's that. Uh, bit and then economics such as money, property, stocks, derivatives, and I think you know this. I don't have to spend much time on you. You can block that uh, that one good. I think, but I think the kind of amount of potential, as one show, shows here, right, that can be unlocked really uh, through like just coming up with better mechanisms for human cooperation is absolutely uh, is, is is kind of uh, is kind of stupefying. Um, next one in a similar vein years, Uh, We have Baladi join us to discuss really the concept of the network state. And so the idea here really is that, um, you know, we already uh, know how to start our own company. We know how to start our own community. We know how to start our own currency. But now, soon enough, we'll also be able to start really our own uh, sovereignties. Um, And he, you know, came...
0: Okay, so did you hear that... (laughs) start our own sovereignties. Now, where have you heard sovereignty around, you know, in the last two or three years, right? And and I've been raising my hands throughout much of this going, it's not what you think, self-sovereignty is not what you think, it's self-sovereignty means that you get to be a blockchain commodity. But how much of this sovereign sovereign movement, sovereignty movement, liberty movement, they've been conditioning people with these words for two years to accept that sovereignty, of course, is the desirable condition, is that we be self-sovereign as a digital commodity. And then that's gonna be flipped. And so, you know, essentially the, these people who are thinking they're about free dom are really getting under the dome
1: came up with this concept a little while ago and shaped much of the discourse really up to now to the extent that people are already moving into um, or or at least like using um, many of the ideas to now prototype what previously were called seasteads or were were called charter cities. Now you can build.
0: Okay and so I just want to mention about the seasteading that that was a project of Milton Friedman's grandson. I, I believe his name is Patry Friedman. And early on in, you know, when all of this was going down, like with the greater reset, John Bush, like is an associate of Patry Friedman, like has interviewed him, thinks the seasteading thing is great. Um, and again, Peter Thiel was backing the seasteading idea. So that once we get to the understanding of complex adaptive systems, they want unique set aside states of exception um, to have these like as Jamie wheel would call them ethical cults, right? Like intentional communities that are disparate and and they might be physical or they might just be simply digital. They may, but that, what they are building is a computational architecture, a computational architecture out of life with human machine hybrid consciousnesses that are coming. And this is going to all be sold to us as a positive thing
1: them kind of like on the network and move them to potentially physical locations
0: all right so all right so there we go uh let me just take a minute let me go back to the picture and picture Okay. So thank you. Um, I was just looking at the comments about Mark Miller. I need to look more into that. Actually, I think stuffers just sent me a paper and it had, uh, Alison Duetman and Drexler and I believe Mark Miller. So that's not someone I'm familiar with, but, um, this is, this is my map over here, uh, that I had done. Gosh, it's been a while. This is pe- my Pegasus Park map, uh, and this started out with Dallas. This was the the. <laughs> this is like how huge this map is. Um, I started out working on this with Lynn uh, around the the Texas Pegasus Park and the way in which uh, the the biotech and the ed tech were converging and sort of what it meant. Uh, for the larger area. And, uh, you know, Texas Instruments being sort of central and Richardson, actually, which is where Drexler's thing is. So uh, let me just see if I can get so situated. So oh, I'm not sorry, guys. Okay. Uh, So this is the Pegasus Park here in the middle. Uh, this is the biotech space, uh, the water cooler, you can see all of the ed tech stuff around it. And then uh, I, again, I mentioned Texas Instruments and Drexler is up in this part of the map. So uh, he was the founder of the Foresight Institute, but I didn't have Miller in there. Um, at the time, he was married to Christine Peterson, that was his first wife. He, Later, got divorced and married Rosa Wang, who was to, had ties to the New York Federal Reserve, a uh, former investment banker in Hong Kong, and a social entrepreneur. And oh, it's interesting that I'm looking at this. The global director of digital financial services at Oxford. Um, so you know that that makes sense why he's at Oxford. And so he in his uh, theories influenced limits to growth. Uh, He had the theory of the gray goo, the self-replicating nanomachines. And he was on the steering committee of something uh, in 2007 called a Productive uh, Nanosystems Technology Roadmap. Uh, And so these were all these different people. Uh, The report was prepared by uh, UT Patel, which I'm assuming is in uh, Tennessee. That's Oak Ridge, right? So there we go. We're on the way towards the moonshot project and living as an avatar. This guy, Alex uh, Kozak, Kozak? he was the project lead uh, and he was the former VP of nanotech at Battelle. So these were all sorts of folks who were involved. Uh, You know, there we've got Charles Lieber up there. He was on the steering committee as well. Um, So just to sort of situate this in, you know, we've got the U.S. Department of Energy. And, you know, I was talking with someone recently, we were sort of messaging back and forth about really the focus on DARPA and the U.S. military and the, this idea of the past couple of years and this rollout of these health interventions as being primarily a military program. And while it is i would say if you're talking primarily about the defense department but you're not also equally talking about the u.s department of energy um you're missing something because the u.s department of energy is key in the nanotechnology space and in where we are headed uh, in this human plus technology a lot of it is centered on nano um, and nuclear so uh, the department of energy is really important and i'm just going to pop over here uh let me see, do we have, oh, no, this is, one sec. I need the other map. Uh, the game theory map. So this is the effective altruism area. Uh, this is part of uh, my research that I've been working on lately. Um, for this series, I haven't put this this section out yet, uh, but it's essentially linking uh, this uh I don't know, it was sort of riffing off of an article that Raul had wrote, written about poker, and then I was adding stuff about game theory. And then through this sort of, you know, windy course, uh, both through uh, uh, iOvation uh, fraud detection software that led into sort of Intel, that led into the Secret Network and Enigma Protocol, uh, and that Alameda Research Lab and uh, was an investor in that. And then also uh, this guy... Uh, Friedberg, I think it is. Yeah, Dan Friedberg. He was a lawyer who was connected with this poker scandal uh, at Ultimate Bet and then became a chief compliance officer over at FTX. And at the time, like Jason shared with me an article. In the New Yorker, actually, it was like a long form essay that was really good about this idea of effective altruism and William McCaskill. And so, again, I would say for the most part, like it got a lot of coverage, but I think people maybe were somewhat dismissive because they weren't actually talking about it within the context of Web3, um, cyber physical systems, nanotechnology um, and emergent AI. And what I thought was kind of interesting, uh, Allison. Uh, men So, I think Steffers just sent me an, a, an article that was about essentially looking like their concerns over uh, generalized artificial intelligence and, you know, sort of what you would do next. Oh, do I have a second? Um, yeah, uh, like what happens, you know, when A when AI wakes up and becomes sentient in whatever way that looks like. I mean, that's, I think Nick Bostrom, that's where they're worried about. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting because what they were focused on was the idea of the utility function. Like, because all of these things proceed towards their utility function, towards their programming interest. And so what they were saying is they were trying to figure out like how to structure the AGI, lead up in, in it, here, this is from a paper with um, Drexler and du, Duetman, and I think Miller. Um, Bostrom's main concern regards the prospect of a hard, uh, in other words, sudden takeoff in which one particular AGI instance reaches AGI first, performs a strategic takeover, and pursues its utility function. According to Bostrom, the most important strategy that humanity can make can use to make AI safe in that scenario, apart from setting up the initial conditions correctly, is to shape the AI's utility function so that it serves human interests. and so I just I think that this whole thing is is kind of interesting to it's it's just below the surface, right? If you're paying attention to Protocol Labs, like you're getting the story that's below the one on the surface that's about crooked, fraudulent people, and you're understanding more that it's about complex emergent systems and AI, um, and how this this interfaces with the idea of. Um, public goods or, you know, potentially even extermination of natural life on earth if we let the, the AI uh, get control of things. So uh, anyway, oh, and I might show this one other uh, video that I added. Uh, where is it? So this is the molecular we printing. Take the next- uh, let me just pull this up. Okay, so this is about the molecular printing, and I, I think I mentioned it before, but in reading Stealing Fire, there's quite an emphasis on altered states of consciousness, and um, I think that, that part of the computation is they want us to enter into collective minds, which means ego death and entering into this altered state of consciousness. and. There are numbers of ways to do this, but uh, pharmaceuticals or psychedelics uh, are part of that. And so in the book, they're actually talking about molecular printers of the type that that's featured in this clip, um, that they would be in your home, like your Suvi, the little mic- robot food thing. Like you would just have your robot... Um, precision printing, molecular printing, pharmaceutical, and that, that there would be uploads of your like custom drugs, including psychedelics. So I just want to run this. School
1: of molecular machines here, we are getting really into the terrain that that was founded on. So we were founded by Eric Drexler and Christine Peterson on the book Engines of Creation. And so that envisions this long-term future of uh, what would it mean if we can actually um, create things from the bottom up with atomic precision so uh, really by moving potentially eventually individual atoms around so that's a very long-term goal but it would mean that you can create almost anything incredibly precisely cheap uh, without without waste uh, and you can create entirely new <laughs> physical objects um, and so we're not there yet by far but we have made an insane amount of progress uh, over the past few years and so I just want to you know briefly give you a quick. Uh, walkthrough of what's already possible here. And so this will be brief, but short and sweet, because I think most of the progress we did that I was blown away by this year came from that group. And so here we have, um, that's coming out of um, David Baker's lab, um, at University of Washington, here it's Alexis Kobe. And he basically asked, and uh, what can uh, can be hallucinate de novo proteins already. So this is, uh, you know, the um, the uh, the dream tools that many of us have played around with um, uh, for for machine learning. Uh, and and you, what you can potentially do is using similar tools to really as uh, help with protein folding um, uh, on the path to creating atomically precise machines. Um, using proteins as the individual components, they've published a few incredible papers on this work, um, and yeah, it's it's really pure magic what's coming uh, out of their lab recently. And that is really using kind of state of the art Rosetta tools uh, and others that come from the machine learning uh, community now. Um, this one is a little bit more out there because it involves uh, a physical component too. So that's Lee Cronin at the University of Glasgow, and um, he is. Uh, basically building a computer and so it's basically software that can translate the words that a chemist speaks into recipes for mo- molecules that a robot com- computer can then understand and produce so this is this non-discovery robot it's a physical device uh, and it's really linked to kind of like end to end to uh this tool by which you know um chemists can like try to communicate with it uh, already a little bit um like you'd speak to um you know like a, to, to an assistant uh, basically and so it's really cool work, and um, uh, it's like still advancing, but maybe one level up. And this is Adam Marblestone, who is, I think, speaking on Friday, if I'm not correct, or on Thursday to you guys, so getting excited. He uh, definitely has his hands in many different individual fields. But here he's kind of taking up this more longer term goal of a molecular 3D printer. And so he's asking what could it look like if we did 3D printing with lego-like macromolecular building blocks uh, and used self-assembly uh, and motors that are based on DNA or protein origami. And so DNA origami is this new field that was pioneered by Will Shi and a few others um, at Harvard and other organizations. And he's basically trying to see what would it look like if we take many of the individual components and pieces and put them together that people are already working on. And so this is his concept of molecular additive manufacturing. And so he's really proposing to create a molecular 3D printer um, that uh, can print uh, individual bits with a greater and greater precision. So here we're getting much closer to the uh, early goals of molecular and nanotechnology. And it's it's
0: really great work. All right. Okay, so let me see. All right, so that's that. Um, now I will say that you know they've been talking about stuff like this for quite some time, and so and you know unless you're someone who's in a lab, it's hard to assess how much what they're saying is just fluff, and how much of it is true. (laughs) So I will just sort of give caution, like there's a lot being put out about nanotechnology and molecular engineering. um, But for the average person, it's just hard to know. So I mean, I would say err on the side of caution. And um, actually, I was just messaging with somebody today they were talking about like conservation and water in in natural environments and and they there was somebody who like knew such things and i said well ask them about nanotechnology like what happens when there's nanotechnology in the water cycle like what what is that like are people who are being trained in environmental conservation um like authentic hopefully conservation you know, water is vital. And if you actually try to Google nanotechnology and water, all you'll come up with is like how wonderful it is. And it's used to clean water and it's fabulous and everything like, I, it, I had to look really hard to find an article that said like that there was some question about nanotechnology in the water. So it seems like most of our water is gonna have nanotechnology in it sooner or later. Um, and no one's, I mean, the fact that we're not even questioning what that means, or there's not even long-term studies about what the impacts are of having nanotech in the soil and the water is very concerning. So, okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and start. So this is, uh, we're on chapter two, uh, the mental fetus. <laughs> So, uh, so this is Oliver Reiser, World Sensorium, 1946. This is about the world brain. Uh, this is the third installment. Uh, OK, so chapter two, The Mental Fetus, uh, planning subjective and objective. Today, man's conception of man is undergoing a major change. Out of the new concept of man will emerge the archetypal idea that will shape our new culture in the world that is now in process, man is learning to think of himself, not in egotistic terms, as an absolute entity, but as part of a single planetary being. And so I would say again, that is part of this, this ego death, right? Like, and, and it's hard because in some ways, like it is very appealing to imagine that everything is connected, everything is unified. I mean, I don't dispute that that is accurate in some way. And yet I think that our individual identities as living beings who are embodied is important. Um, and the idea of collective self-sacrifice into this giant super organism isn't something that any of us have really talked about. Like it's, it's being presumed. And... You know i think the last couple of years it's been like the narrative has been structured so that if you're not going along with the common good what is being told to you as the common good that you're outrageous, right, that you're terribly outrageous, even if you have very principled reasons for having a difference of opinion. But because the narratives have been structured around the common good, because Web3 is being positioned around the common good, because the climate narrative is being positioned around the public good, because social entrepreneurship is being positioned as caring for poor and vulnerable populations, if you question that, you become an egocentric jerk. And it's quite interesting to me to see how far back this goes, right? That the plan has always been. And again, it's it's hard because for the most part like many people on the conservatives are framing this as the Marxist. But they're not understanding that there is a polarization in place between planned economies socialism communism and free market capitalism that dynamic is supposed to be pivoting but neither of them is going to lead us out of the world brain in fact the duality of the two of them in opposition are driving us straight into it and so what we're dealing with is math mathematical constructs and really a much larger philosophical question around sociobiology and like complexity theory of life as having autonomy and independence, but it's not how we commonly understand as ideological. So I know I say that all the time, but I think that's important. The collectivism is sociobiology, not uh, communism, socialism, per se. Um, Okay, so okay. Uh, So the human race developing as the tip end of the vast brain nerve system of animate nature. Subtly united with his cosmic environment, man is moving on towards a higher biological social integration in which radio and television appear as precursors of the circulatory process of the emerging organism. So that's quite something, right? That that, that radio and TV are the precursors of how we will be communicating, which you know now that you think about it early on i was talking about like ian ackildes at georgia tech and this idea of like a future of like cyber physical computing systems with nanotech that we just think thoughts right and and all of these like the walls are just computer interfaces that everything is computational right that it's not separate and so yeah it goes from radio and television to invisible nanoparticles and 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 infused with our bodies really very much so. Okay, such is perhaps the new concept of man that man is framing of himself. Okay, so I do, you know what, I wanna take, I wanna take a second and I wanna pull up something here. Uh, let me let me just get. So this is something else I've been working on today. Um I think it's in the descent map. So I've been working a little bit on integral theory, and I know that some other people have too. Uh, Danny Katz and Emily Moyer and Sebs have all been looking into Ken Wilber. Uh, And not just Ken Wilber, I mean, he's probably the most prominent person In at the time, because the earlier people have now passed. But they were building on this idea of spiral dynamics and cyclical cultural evolution. Uh, And this was initially posited by um, uh, Claire Graves. Let me see, here's Claire Graves. And so that's right here. Uh, And I want to pull up one more thing. So I thought it was interesting, Claire Graves, this isn't, was a professor at Union College and Union College is in upstate New York in Schenectady as a matter of fact and it was really a center of physics research, uh, because at the time, Schenectady, which is here, this orange dot, uh, was the headquarters of General Electric. And and uh, General Electric, uh, they had a big research campus. And Charles Proteus Steinmetz, who was a brilliant, brilliant man, and he was working on the alternating current, he, he actually was a leader in the technocracy space. Uh, and he was part of this technical alliance, Technocracy Incorporated. And so I think Claire Graves would have come later, but it, I think it's important to know the context of Union College in physics. And it was actually their radio station was the first radio station in, um, in the nation in, uh, since 1920. So that, that was at, at Union College. And then there's something else, the dome, the dome of like the key, it's called the Hex Alpha. Like they have this, oh, let me see, that's just telling you about the Hex Alpha. Let's, oh, there, see, it's a quite an amazing building this dome and this, this dome has something called a hex alpha. So it's quite a ritual type of building here. I think it was just like used for ceremonial space or something like that, it's not classrooms. But this hex alpha is up in the dome. And let, let me remind myself what the hex alpha was. Um, the hex alpha is two interlaced equilateral triangles. It also has other names including the hexagram, a name which is applicable to any six-line or six-sided figure. It also represents the six-pointed or blazing star. Solomon is supposed to have found the hex alpha a most potent talisman. Uh, there is a story that he confer- confined a genie in a bottle by sealing it with the hex alpha, which is the reason for the device being known as the Seal of Solomon. It is not known why the Royal Arch adopted the interlaced triangles as the hex alpha being a Jewish symbol, nor does it enter into the Irish or Scottish ritual, but it is significant that circles interlaced, the triangles interlaced in both of them in conjunction are regarded as Christian emblems and the possible basis of many things taught in the chapter and at the table. So uh, anyway, I, I just thought it was, it was kind of interesting that Uh, Claire Graves of the spiral dynamics um, and this sort of cyclical cultural evolution um, taught there. Now it would have been after Steinmetz, but uh, you know, again, it's not a big school so that the influence in Schenectady of General Electric and the research and the physics I think comes into play again with spiraling. And, you know, as Steffers has done a lot of work on this idea of like spintronics and spin in the physics. And I can't, you know, pretend to understand what all of that is, but I do think that it's important. And so, you know, I guess I, I wanted to bring this up because this 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 idea of uh, the new concept of man that man is framing of himself. So the conscious evolution piece is really central. And so I've been I was looking into uh, the transpartisan movement because I think in some ways. Oh shoot! You know what? Here, I I forgot to do this. Sorry. Here's my map, guys. I I'm I'm not great with. with it used to not have to push the transition button. So sorry. So here is is Claire Graves. Uh, over to here. Uh, social spiral dynamics. Claire Graves. Uh. They were using the spiral dynamics in this transpartisan meeting in Denver. Now, transpartisanism is to to bring the white uh, alt right and alt left together, um, and this started in the nineteen nineties. And I I put up a clip from Joseph McCormick and. Um, uh, what they were doing in uh, in the Rogue Valley in Ashland uh, with this idea of a populist town hall meeting. But ultimately, I think that the transpartisan movement, which is supported by New America over here, that they're going to use this with, Uh, blockchain tokenization to create a new form of electronic government, uh, and like futarchy that that, that is what's coming next. And so I, I wanted to talk about this idea of conscious evolution because Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, was at the summit in, in, uh, the citizen summit in Denver in 2009 with the transpartisan. And, you know, she was this founder for the foundation for conscious evolution, as well as being a leader, leading proponent in this idea of, uh, space travel in the night space colonization, not just, uh, uh, space travel, but space colonization in the 1970s. And, and in fact, after her death, uh, this guy, Mark Gaffney, let me see where he's at. Um, yeah Mark Gaffney uh, was taking over her legacy and so he was actually connected with uh, this uh, Center for Integral Wisdom and working with essentially like some libertarians this guy John Mackey who was the uh, founder of the CEO founding CEO of Whole Foods uh, and he was he was an early developer of this idea of conscious capitalism. And so this idea of the spiral, uh, the integral wisdom, I think that actually, now that I understand this idea of wisdom, they're using wisdom as a coded word, Uh, a lot, it's connected to the wisdom of the crowd, and they're going to use sort of crowd-based sensing technology, I think, to harness the quote-unquote wisdom of the crowd for computational methods. And so I just sort of wanted to point out this idea of, um, you know, the the conscious evolution that humans are supposed to take part in how we evolve, right? And, you know, and I'm not saying that we don't do better or we don't evolve you know, evolve over time. But also in the mix was this guy, Michael, uh, Austrolink. Uh, he was collaborating with Joseph McCormick. And I will just say that Mr. McCormick, if you look him up, um, someone was saying like Ashland was very liberal and progressive and all this stuff. But the guy who is behind transpartisanship, um, he, his father was a, uh, a robotics, uh, aerospace, robotics engineer, he went to Virginia Military Academy and was involved in Republican politics in Georgia, and then went on to now he's based in China doing engineering work. So it's, you know, it wasn't like necessarily a progressive project. The guy that was working with him on that, his name is Jim Ruff. He was actually a consultant, like an organizational consultant uh, that was working with, let me see, Boeing and Xerox and IBM. Right. So these were not just sort of hippy dippy people. These these are uh, very, uh, very well connected, uh, resourced uh, corporate consultants. Right. Uh, working in transpartisanship. So uh, my uh, Michael Ostrelink, uh he, I was sort of shocked when I looked up his background uh, because he was trained in the integral theory and is sort of very much, I think, like in the background of um, Integral medicine, integrated medicine, which again, on the surface, like I don't necessarily have a problem with, you know, having, you know, integrate, like an integrated approach to health and wellness, but he's also working in body oriented psychology, which I think is going to align with his embodied computing. He was working in energy medicine in neurofeedback. Uh, he was a founder with Ken Wilber of this Integral Institute, and he was also working in Spiral Dynamics, and he describes himself as a transpartisan social entrepreneur who is a leading expert in transpartisan uh, public policy, and that he was working on this liberty co- coalition that was working on civil liberties, privacy, and transparency, especially around medical privacy. And so what I'm sort of seeing in th- this patterning of sort of uh like a welding of sort of conservative outlooks, but also alternative health outlooks with, you know, data privacy is really about you going on blockchain and becoming a digital commodity. The transparency would be about what works value-based healthcare, right? And, And this guy, he was also involved in, let's see, the, uh, uh, Let's see. So he was working on the transpartisanship with Reuniting America, interested in non-ordinary states of consciousness and altered states of consciousness, uh, and then he was a, a health coach and a, a optimization coach with Seal Fit, uh, with retired Navy SEALs in this idea of the unbeatable mind and sort of mental fitness training and and human optimization and, and online psychology training programs. And so, and, and this was back in, you know, 2008, uh, or earlier that, that he was doing this work again in sort of biohacking, right? Um, Integral theory and conservative politics, and also one on the one side asking for privacy and protections of privacy, but then on the other side, knowing with blockchain what that's going to mean, like with mental health treatment and psychedelics and the other stuff. So it's sort of feeling like, you know, now that I see where people are going. And I, you know, I wasn't coming from the alt health space, and I, I, you know, I'm not much of a joiner, and so this idea of like influencers and products and, you know, cross marketing and and all of these things, like I'm just not that. Like I, I eat regular food, and I don't do a whole lot of all these supplements and other things. But I'm seeing increasingly, like there are some concerns around some of the products that people who are ostensibly for health and freedom it's going to get complicated. So, um, anyway, I just, I want to say that because when, when this line is coming through about man, uh, the new concept of man, that man is framing of himself, I think we have to think of it in terms of, uh, the, the conscious evolution, the, the spiral dynamics, these influencers, these, uh, consulting parties of, all stripes conservative and progressive and then how they feed into these alternative health markets. Um, because, you know, I've said this early on, um, the, the, the 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 health crisis or wh- whatever it was in that immediate moment, that was like the trauma bonding and the simulation modeling and to get everybody lined up and to create these influence, like to reinforce these influencer networks. But what's the longer game is really wellness and biohacking. And, you know, and I don't really see a whole lot of people in that space. Like I would be interested if there are people out there that you see who are maybe, their business is alternative health, but they're actively contesting the idea of a value-based payment system, of blockchain being used for medical records and, um, of like the nanotechnology because I can see very much that the nanotechnology is going to be pitched as organic right if you come down to the molecular computer it's all just molecules right so they could say anything is organic but like slathering yourself in nano or drinking this nano um, we don't even know like what it's exactly doing to us or what it's doing when it gets out into the environment it goes through our body and then it gets out into the environment what it's doing so anyway so that's that's where I've That's what I'm thinking there. Okay, so back to the book. All right, Um, so, so this conception not only lends a novel dimension to reality. Oh, did I? Sorry guys, I'm trying to, oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm terrible with the buttons. I need Jason to help me out with these things. When I'm on my own, I'm not in a very good way, okay. Um, Okay, so this conception not only lends a novel dimension to reality, it presents us also with the unique conception of the meaning of history. According to the view we have sketched, the meaning of history is to be found in the onward and upward planetary spiral. Let me say that again. Okay. According to the view we have sketched, the meaning of history is to be found in the onward and upward planetary spiral towards the appearance of something completely new in social evolution, the development of a specific organ of civilization for mobilizing our energies and unifying social purposes. Wow. So that pretty much sounds like protocol labs, right? Like mobilizing energy, right? And unifying social purposes. So that's the blockchain smart contract. So I do, uh, want to just pop over here for a second and show you one other thing. Um, cause somebody, somebody emailed me this and it was, it was quite fabulous. So it was a paper by this guy, Eric Schwartz, and it was on third order cybernetics. And so, um, Let me just show you, I just wanna give a gambler. So this is, it's like a compilation of papers that he had, but isn't this something, isn't this like an amazing thing? So, I mean, you look at my maps, right? Like this is this giant map and I can maybe, I'll link this in the comments when we get, but it's it's conceptual, it's all different, uh, like philosophical concepts that are shaping uh, around systems theory, largely. He was a systems theorist, right? So we've got social cybernetics, uh, psychobiology, technopsychology. There, look, we've got Laszlo. I'm always talking about Laszlo. Look, we've got Skinner. Um, but there are other things, like I've, I haven't have heard of Yevgorov, Graf- Korolenko earth as organism we ha- i have heard of vernadsky so i you know i'm going to put this in cuz i i have this saved as a pdf um it's it's going to be page 9 um but i think it's useful to look around and just see how far back like who here, Carl uh, Pribram, Holographic Systems. It's really interesting to look and see, like once you start to have a vocabulary of the terms that are used in the concepts, look, we have Donatella Mellows, uh, Meadows, she was uh, Limits to Growth, uh, Green Revolution, Borlaug, all sorts of this, like, and and having a language for it and being able to sort of hook into who the people were and understanding that this is, you know, this is 80, 70 80 years worth or, or more. I mean, some of this stuff goes back really early. Um, if you go further down, they've got Aristotle and these other things. But um, definitely in the last 75 to 80 years, a lot of this has evolved. So I would say for me, if you want to understand the structure, rather than hanging on every next like white paper that's coming out of the World Economic Forum or every next talk, like familiarize yourself with um, the larger history so that you could, like when when you get new information, you can situate it, right? Like we've got electromagnetism. Like these are all of the things that the people who wanna steer society, who wanna steer us towards emergence and towards a new design, this is all the stuff that they're doing. So, um, you know, anyway, I, I found this really wonderful. So thank you to the person who sent me, Eric Schwartz, very interesting. And I'll just include this. So you know, I just read here about the, um, uh, so the onward and upwards planetary spiral towards the appearance of something completely new, the development of a specific organ of civilization for mobilizing energy and unifying social purposes. So um, this isn't exactly the same as Graves, like he has, but it is a, it is a cycle. And he has, I think, six steps. Uh, Eric Schwartz, from vegetative life, um, although we love p- botany. So, you know, it's no, no shade on different stages of life, but vegetative all the way up. And I would say, like, so number four is logos, coherence, logic, science, and technology, uh, merchant states, and democracy. So I, I would say they imagine the people who are putting this on are imagining that we are moving out of this phase, the, the logos, coherence, Um, phase of democracy, right? Um, And we are moving into Gnosis, which is interesting because there's also a Tao uh, named Gnosis, uh, of consciousness, which is collective self-knowledge and a planetary cyborg, okay? So that's the thing they're talking about. Like th- this is this is understood across many of these people who are working in the social sciences. Um, there is an expectation that we are evolving to, into a planetary cyborg. Um, it's it's not a secret. And then eventually, once we we move on, then I guess the planetary cyborg has it is able to create itself. Um, and I I think that in some respects, this self creation is is like beyond God, right Like we become our own gods, I guess and we're just making stuff up as we go along. Um, but th- th- this idea of consciousness is the focus of uh, the fifth level and uh, they're definitely this is a, in, in my this is a struggle. this is a struggle over a consciousness. So anyway, so I'll go back. So anyway, I hope you thought that was interesting. (laughs) All right, Um, okay. So the, the biological forerunner of this collective organ for receiving from and dispensing to one and all is the central nervous system in individual organisms. Just as the cerebral cortex is the vehicle of the master reaction, which regulates the diverse and otherwise conflicting biological reactions. So if we are to achieve a similar global strategy for mankind, we shall have to evolve a seat of intellectual social dominance, a world brain to harmonize our multifarious economic potential, uh, sorry, our multifarious economic, political, and cultural activities. And so I'm just going to pause here and and say, um, you know, the difference between riser like so his whole idea is the world brain that it's a unit right but i think actually what's coming is more like it's everything i hear they're talking about now is bottom up bottom up decentralized emergent so in fact, Levin, you know, they're not so interested in the brain and the ner- and the nervous system. They're interested in the bioelectricity between cells because that I feel like that has the most interesting potential for them to mobilize this new idea of existence that they're coming up with. So even though throughout the book, we're talking about the world brain, I do think it's important at this point to, to think through that the The presentation that is coming now because of the nature of the organizing system, which is the distributed ledger technology, which is the blockchain, which is the smart contracts, which is a distributed independent sensor network. I don't think that that today's version is going to be imagined as a central nervous system and a brain per se. You could imagine it as the networks maybe within the brain, but not the brain itself. It's like a brain without a brain okay we seriously propose that humanity must become in fact a biological social entity Uh, when we consider this organism to be in relation to a developing world plan it is as though there were one worth seeing double yeah so the planetary twin you know leo has talked a lot about that the microsoft planetary computer seeing double is the twin of of life on the planet as though two sets of global planning were going on at the same time, one subjective and the other objective. These two are in no sense antagonistic. On the contrary, they are supplementary. The first is a matter of developing an intuition or a feeling of the biological unity of mankind. And the second is a matter of translating this intuition of the oneness of humanity into a global social reality. And... Yeah, so that's kind of going back to the the holographic aspects. We stress the fact that these two types of global planning must be carried out simultaneously, the ultimate goal being their convergence towards coalescence. At present, each marches to its own type of synthesis. The one type of planning, subjective, emotional, ideological, having for its goal a psychological, ethical harmony of head and heart, and so again, I just want to re-emphasize the whole head and heart aspect. Um, the heart mind synthesis is going back to a lot of this biotech, neurotech, biofeedback stuff. That you know, there's a lot of people in the health space pitching this, um, t- pitching these wearables as like being good for your health. Uh, the other, the objective planning aiming at the social cultural unity of a global or world civilization. Both types of planning, subjective inner and outer objective outer must proceed together, step by step and side by side, just as the corticothalamic integrations via the cerebral hemispheres are unified to produce the subjectivity uh, rounded patterns of the head heart synthesis. So the cultural patterns of old fashioned hemispherics, world islands, must be superseded by globalistics of the world brain and its accompanying planetary integrations. And so I, you know, I would say that, you know, within the polarization, like it is accurate, ac- like in some ways, I feel like the, the name globalist, the globalist comes with a lot of baggage. And there is this tension that is being held between nationalism and globalism, right? Now, the metaverse is a global project. And so the the people who are talking about nationalism as a material reality without taking into account the globalist nature of the metaverse, like if you think that you could be nationalist but still like wade into Web3 and that you can incorporate that into your nationalism, like I don't think that that's possible. And so for me, the question is like they want to subsume all of culture into one Homogeneous computational layer, right? They're, they're gonna say we're all unified and therefore we all just are gonna be um, the same. And I would say no, I mean, I well, let me restate that. I think we're not necessarily going to be the same, but we're gonna be subject to, to like the same sort of let ideas. I don't know, like I'm still trying to figure this out because I think that They talk about it like they want us to be the same, but I think for the computation, they actually need us to be different. So I'm of two minds about that. I will keep thinking on it. Okay, this idea of a global culture is the biggest single idea in the human mind today. To elaborate such a plan, we must evoke groups of individuals capable of visualizing this new approach to world problems. If they can discover how to work with the best of our scientists, they can then span the gap between the vast, emotionally illuminated, subjective global group and the objective, purposeful, intelligent, and tireless outer world government. The statement that uh, that sorry, the statement that subjective unification by way of the formulation of a mental fetus can be successful only to the extent that it helps to create and in turn reflects an objective synthesis of social perspectives, places a heavy load on planning, and is therefore necessary to say a few words on the topic of our attitude toward planning. And so as we get into planning, I think it's important to think about um, what Alison Duetman just said about the game, because I think, in some ways, the planning is going to happen through token engineering, through token tokenomics in electronic government, through smart contracts layers. But they want it to be like a game. Like, I think they, because that's also part of the state of flow that they want. They want everybody to have the state of flow. And so I think that this is when Michael Crow and he talks about hanging out with Bill Gates and coming up with the idea that you're, you're, Education will be an ongoing game scenario, ongoing quests. It's this thing that is coming through, that they want planning, but they don't want it to be too difficult. They just want you to sort of fall into it and play the game and stay in the zone and not think about it too much. So I think the planning is going to be the melding of the smart contract into the built environment, into the computations, just like the clip that I was showing earlier. Okay, so the stop man movement, (laughs) stop man, okay. These days we hear a great deal about planning. There are literally hundreds of plans, big plans and little plans, political plans and economic plans and so on. A survey of these proposals for the shaping of the future leaves one with the impression that many of these well-intentioned advocates of reconstruction are really thinking in terms of outmoded forms of thought. And this again, calls attention to the fact that our first reform should be in the underlying mental habits, which guide the forms of thinking about any of our social problems. And so, yeah, so they're saying first, we have to redo how our brains work. And this builds on the last chapter we were talking about yesterday about language. They kind of wanted to do a brain wiping and just like get rid of language and like use pictures use radio use television use virtual reality get rid of language now I do agree with them that language does structure how you think but then like we're allowed to have a culture right like people are allowed to think with different frameworks and so like we don't want to just all be a tabula rasa and and subject to the math, math mathematics but here they're talking about um outmoded forms of thought and sort of mental hygiene, right? Getting rid of your underlying mental habits. And so I think like we have to understand the big push behind uh, the primacy of mental health interventions and trauma as being part of this plan to reboot what is normal, right? The new normal. Reboot our 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 understanding of how society works, and that that's going to be happening through the mental health system and through the social welfare system, and then there will be metrics attached to that for the impact finance space. So after studying some of the, after studying some of the plans put out, it begins to appear that many so-called reformers have entered into a kind of unconscious conspiracy against man what someone has already called a stop man movement. What many of these planners are really telling us is that you are free to propose any and all sorts of plans for reconstructing the world, uh, parentheses, provided these plans don't challenge the existing structures of society or modify in any fundamental way, the prevailing business, educational, political, or other vested interests. To be specific, One is especially depressed by the lack of creative imagination shown by educators in their attitude toward needed reforms in the field of education. And again, the reforms for education are gonna be the learning economy, right? Like the new form of education is post-literate, post-language, engage with digital media and respond so that the machine can learn us and that's the learning economy and then we will be given credits like through our Brainwave headbands. Now, if it is true, as one critic uh, of our present intellectual leadership has asserted, that the contemporary liberal feels fragmentary and isolated in an alien and inscrutable universe, we face a gloomy future. What then we may expect from the less progressive individuals who do not pretend to be the thinkers of our society? Where then are we to find the leadership If the scientific humanists are willing to try their hands at it, should they not at least be free from the charge of impractical idealism? Whatever one may say about the planetary socialism, it cannot be supposed that these dreamers of the future are lacking in confidence. But their optimism about the battle of man is a rational optimism, they believe. With their cheery, here comes tomorrow, they strike a much needed note of hope they light a candle of courage, which may help dispel some of the dismay and confusion of the modern scene. But the scientific humanism calls for daring execution as well as noble thinking, for it holds to the proposition that for a long time to come, the human race is going to be confronted by problems such as no age or race of men has ever faced before. And you know that's the trope, right? Every every generation is faced by insurmountable problems, and yet we always seem to sort of still come through them. Uh, okay, so instead of returning to our old way of thinking and of doing things, we must now enter upon an even more heroic era of mental reorganization and social readjustment. Our job now is to bring into play those morphogenetic forces which can guide the embryology of the future organism to be. Wow, okay. So you know what? I I think I'm gonna pause here for a second if I can. So let me, let let, let me, I wanna pull up the Eisenstein thing. So, and I'm trying to remember. It's part of my first piece in the series. And included it in the bottom about gaming. Here we go.
1: One of the things we both.
0: All right, all right, so here we go. Okay, so this is about the morphogenetic fields. And I think that this is really important to the idea of electrical signaling and communication at a social level. So just as a revisit, Sorry, Sambar is not looking. So on this, on on the right is Sepp Kambar, and he was the guy from Wildflower Montessori. Uh, he worked on Google's personalization; they're updated, updating their personalization algorithm. And he was in social dynamics at MIT Media Lab, and now he's with Cello, which is something that Leo has covered quite. Um, in quite great detail at Silicon Icarus about the digital money. Okay, and so there is Charles Eisenstein, and he is you know an influencer in the sort of you know health, freedom, thinking, yoga, mindfulness, various sort of spaces. And he's a Yale graduate, and they're they're talking about uh, they're going to talk about the morphic field. And so I think this is really important to keep in mind as we we think about how this brain is going to be organized.
2: Talked about is um, this idea um, that was put forth by Walter Wink, which uh, who is a, a philosopher and theologian, and he said, you know, like the founding myth of our um, of, of really like the last two thousand years is this myth of or a founding myth of these last two thousand years is the myth of redemptive violence, and the example that he uses is Popeye, and he says, you know. In every episode of Popeye, basically Bluto um, uh, tries to abduct olive oil. Um, Popeye finds out, starts fighting Bluto. Um, at a certain point, he's getting beaten badly. He eats his spinach. Um, he gets strong, and he beats up uh, Bluto and uh, saves olive oil. Good prevails over evil. Um, now, the downside to and that myth is persistent everywhere, like movie lines, uh, the way that we think about things like the war on poverty or the war on drugs or so on. Um, but the, basically kind of the, what it misses is nobody, two things. One is nobody ever learns anything. I mean, Bluto never learns that it's not good to abduct olive oil. And Popeye never learns to eat his spinach before, uh, Uh, before getting into a fight instead of in the middle. Um, and it also reifies um, the m- morphic feel from which the first thing came from, The uh, like basically kind of um, the, the fight against X. Like means and ends are the same. And so like fighting against whatever it is Often leads to a world with more fight, um, and so you've talked about um, an alternative uh, morphic resonance, which I'd love to kind of close off by hearing your kind of quick thoughts on morphic resonance. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, I discussed the myth of redemptive violence at length in an essay called "Building a Peace Narrative," and I referred to Walter Wink's work in that. Uh, and, and, you know, identified, and this has been a theme in my work for a long time, the basic formula for change making that we kind of take for granted in this society, which is you've, you identify a bad guy and then you defeat the bad guy by force. You can see this in US foreign policy, you can see this in a lot of the political discourse today, you can see this in health policy, You know, what's the bad guy, what's the pathogen? What's the bad thing in myself? You see it in spirituality, even like this war, this war mentality. And there's a lot of problems with it, one of which is that um, you never ask, why is the bad guy bad? Or what are the conditions that allow the bad guy to be so powerful? And in the economic sphere, you could ask, as you mentioned before, like, why are certain people seemingly so greedy? Like, What is the system that creates the apparent psychopaths that run a lot of corporations? Are they really psychopaths or are they merely in a certain position in that game of musical chairs that sets them up? to act like that. If you are always out about, okay, we're gonna solve the problem by tearing down those bad guys, tearing down those awful people, those greedy people, those bankers, you know, those this, that, and the other thing, you're never gonna look at the system. You're never gonna, and sometimes maybe you do have to fight Pluto, but if that's all you do, you're in endless war. So the principle of morphic resonance is one of the alternatives to solving problems through this, through overcoming something by force uh, and the paradigm of overcoming by force it's it's not only in our politics and, and and uh hollywood movies and stuff it's also like at the core of what we understand to be technology where you're moving masses around by exerting forces on them And progress in technology means more and more accurately doing that with more and more force. That's called progress. And it hits the same kind of glass ceiling that we talked about earlier. Like there are certain things you can do incredibly well that way. And there are certain areas that we are seeing in our society now where that way of engaging the world fails.
0: All right. So I'm going to just... All right, so I'm just going to say for a second, this is a, goes on for a bit longer and I forgot that it was such a long clip, but I want to sort of point out, so they're setting up the parallel between by force or collective, like there, there's a collective change or a by force change. Now, you know, I'm not a fan of force. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not a go-to for redemptive violence either. And, you know, I'm practicing very much, you know, Cliff keeps saying like, you know, looking for the bad guy with the hammers is not the the way to do it. And, and I agree, like, I think that's very problematic. But it's interesting that they're talking about a, collect- like, peace and, war and peace, right? So peace in the blockchain world means the homeostasis, means the balance. And I feel like, ultimately, what they're talking about in the morphic field is that you would program through sensor technology and tokenization the world as though it were like John von Neumann's automata grid, right? Like these are the rules and we have coded this for a good and proper society. And therefore we can simply operate within the programming and everything will be fine. And then we won't have to go up against difficult situations or difficult people because those people won't exist. It will be sort of fully decentralized and it will be like good. And that this will happen through the beautiful money, which is the cello, which is the blockchain. So, um, anyway, I, I I do think that there is something about bioelectricity and sociality that they are looking to harness. Like I actually think that most people in the world are good. Like I don't, I don't, you know, I I, I would say. And, and maybe we do need some sort of self-reflection on our social conditions that have led us to have this amount of like wealth and quality or spend this much money on defense contracting or crazy amounts of chemicals and things that we don't need. Like there must be some reinforcement. And that's when I, when I do say that this is emergent and distributed. Like there must be some sort of reinforcements out there that do that. But I don't think we need to code it into a blockchain. I don't need, think we need to turn it into some sort of invisible, programmable, live action role play game in the world itself. Like that's not the way it should be done because who in the world would even be coding that, right? Um, like I, I, I resist the cybernetic tokenization of everything. So um, anyway, I'm just gonna let me see how I escape. Oh, I guess it's not It doesn't important. produce. Sorry, it's not letting me get out of here. Okay, there. Um, all right, so, all right, I'm just gonna go back to the regular camera. All right, so thanks for bearing with me on that. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't mean to cancel, sorry, okay. So I'm still here. All right, uh, so back to the book. All right, where was I? Okay, uh, mental reorganization and social readjustment <laughs> and the morphogenetic field. So again, I think that actually really does speak well to the Kamvar Eisenstein clip about the the real social readjustment and how they might imagine it's happening now they're not coming right out and saying like we have the tool that's going to help fix this um so that we don't need redemptive violence anymore we'll all just be coded uh to be polite and peaceful um i think that there must be some other way to do it that doesn't involve blockchain so i'm still sticking with that uh so, in, uh, in words, this is not difficult to phrase, but in actual accomplishment, this will be anything but easy. The condition of the world is such that only a theory, a mental fetus, adequate to the needs of the modern world, can guide the formative process for the enormous job of development that lies ahead. Somehow, we must learn how to weave an entire pattern of novel formulations or concepts into the existing body of our changing social structure visualize the framework of the emergent world federation, and then bring into being the as yet non-existent organism to be. The project we have outlined is indeed an ambitious one. Our undertaking involves the proposed demonstration that the next big development in the economic political evolution of our rapidly integrating world civilization, integrating at least through technological media, is the fabrication of a world brain to serve as the vehicle of a coming planetary culture. There are already signs indicating that this necessity for a thoroughgoing reorientation is being recognized. Let us glance at several such omens. And so I will say like integrating, 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 like there's like lots and lots of stuff related to like, you know, this, all of this integral theory. (laughs) Like I feel like, you know, and and I'll just sort of say it again, like with this with this bit here, um, you know, the Center for Integral Wisdom. I think the integration, now they're talking about that we need to sort of just integrate our better selves and be like, again, the human potential movement, right? Like this optimization, but I, like I mean, do I think that Ken Wilbur knows about the the Oliver Riser? Like I I don't think so. But there there is the underlying current of optimization in this that is central to the cybernetics. So again, just just thinking that the um the integral integration is part of the emergence convergence. Um. All right. So, all right. Okay. All right. So, uh, section three, the psychic unification of mankind. All right. Because this, this is something like, this is part of the collective, the yeah, the collective. Okay. One of the hopeful signs in the world is the increasing recognition that the ailments of our civilization are not the consequence of a military crisis, which was suddenly thrust upon us by our enemies who attacked us. Through the, through, through the perspective of time, we see now that the crisis in our culture has been coming to a head over a considerable period of time, and still the various nations of the world face many of the major problems that have plagued the modern world for decades. It is clear that the period of intellectual social reconstruction is by no means an, at an end. Aside from that it is noteworthy that many of us also realize that one of the depressing shortcomings of our world has been the forces of separation, which set up barriers between men, uh, have all too frequently been stronger than the forces of attraction that harmonize and unite. It is now clear that one of the defects of our civilization has been the ever present tendency towards what professor A.N. Whitehead calls bifurcations. For example, the splitting of a theory and a practice, uh, the separation of the world of facts as studied by the scientists and the world of values as projected by moralists, preachers, social reformers, politicians, and the like. Science and morality, labor and leisure, culture and politics, thought and action, man and nature, mechanism and purpose. These are some of the dualities generated by our culture." This cultural atomism corresponds closely to the splitting of intellect and emotion, reason and feeling by traditional elementistic psychology, and has provided the prototype for the educational atomization of a curriculum which first departmentalizes human interests and in activities and then teaches subjects as independent entities. It is not surprising that with such piecemeal analysis we end up educationally with confusion through lack of integration while socially we are left with what someone has called a cultural schizophrenia in which those who have the knowledge don't have the power and those who have the power don't have the knowledge our leaders i mean the intellectuals and not the politicians map out in theory the course which our changing civilization should take but these intellectuals have not been able to tap the emotional reserves of human nature. In society, the liberals have been unable to dramatize the program of democracy. Indeed, they have sometimes despised those very areas of human nature, our emotional reservoirs, which dictators with their monopolistic control of the instruments of propaganda have been able to release so effectively and employ in such socially harmful ways. One aim of the program of scientific humanism is to find out how to make society sane, (laughs) how to make society sane through an understanding of science and how to make science humane by catching it up in a broader extra-scientific movement towards a more inclusive whole, a world federation or a universal community, the creation of which can only be achieved as we succeed in fusing intelligence and emotion or logic and love as Mary Everett Boole envisioned it. Such a unification of scientific, religious, and social motivations will help us overcome the present detrimental dualism in our society of a sterile intellectualism and an irrational emotionalism. But, we repeat, only a world picture painted afresh by the hand of the artist-scientist freeing man from slavery to theoretical materialism as well as an industrial mechanism can in this generation inspire us to strive anew towards the assimilation of logic and love united in the control of human life. Okay. So logic and love in the control of human life. All right. The elements of this planetary synthesis are already in exist. Well, you know what I do want to, I'm going to, I'm going to do one more thing here. So, uh, uh, she shared with me a paper. So I'm just going to pull over. This is so, the, the integral Institute was Ken Wilbur and and for me it's quite interesting that he's based in Denver so, so this is him over here so Ken Wilbur is in Denver uh, he created the integral Institute and then there was a spin-off that so the integral Institute was I guess a nonprofit and the integral life is a for-profit enterprise to promote the ideals the ideas of integration and the guy who who uh, is leading that, his name is Rob Smith. And I'm just going to pull up his, uh, some images from his LinkedIn because I think they're pretty interesting. Um, so wait a minute, I should start from the bottom up. Okay. So at like pretty much right out of school, like within three or four years, he became the co-founder of Nevada Nano. (laughs) So this is 2003, 2004, which is really early. And it says that he, that Nevada Nano uh, manufactures microelectromechanical systems, or MEMS, uh, sensor modules for commercial and government applications. And that they have a patented sensor technology uh, that was supported by DARPA, uh, specifically for Internet of Things gas sensing. And, uh, and then he was the director of this Nevada Ventures nanoscience program at the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, and they were working on weapons sensors uh, for the world's best new defense technology. So right out of the gate, he's starting with nanotechnology. And then uh, he was in charge of something called Allaire Medical which he describes as the largest disease management company in the world. Uh, and then sort of became the CEO of the Integral Institute. Uh, again, working on new models of corporate governance and world governance with the United Nations, emerging monetary regimes, and new religious interpretive systems and performing arts. So he definitely seems like the kind of guy who would like Oliver Reiser would be interested in, uh, had in mind maybe. And then he, he went on to uh, be part of this vertical, Development Academy, which was an, uh, an assessment uh, essentially for world leaders based on the maturity profile. And he had something called the Chrysalis, the world's transformational learning program, a digital coach in your pocket to build behavioral micro skills. And, uh, and then most recently is working like, again, for Integral Life but he was a partner in something called Echelon Scientific that's early-stage semiconductors and um, complex chips for defense, biomedical, MEMS, and quantum computing. Um, so this is the kind of guy who's connected to, um, to the integral stuff, right? It's not just like, oh, like, you know, whatever. But uh, Stephers did share with me that there was a, this is an article in Integral Life Uh, where he's actually, uh, Rob Smith is doing an interview with Ben Goertzel. And the, the interview is titled, Loving AIs, Bringing Unconditional Love to Artificial General Intelligence. And so when they're talking about love and logic, I mean, this is the example of it, right? Like, they're already imagining that somehow they're going to imbue love into Sophia, the humanoid robot or, or what have you, I mean, this is a conversation that they were having. This article is from 2017. So it's not even that recent, but when they're talking about control, you know, the assimilation of logic and love united in the control of human life. I mean, that should, I think that should just give us all pause. Okay. So The elements of this planetary synthesis are already in existence. They have been presented at various times and in various places by many teachers of mankind. It is the weaving together of the threads of a new pattern of thought, which constitutes the task of the coming generations. If one were given to plagiarism by anticipation, one might easily enunciate some of the basic principles of this coming cultural synthesis. Here surely are some of the constituent notes in the new world harmony. And again, it's interesting how he keeps bringing in music. Okay, some building genes of the world body, section four. The new world organism will of course take the principle of evolutionary development for granted, but unlike mechanistic theories of evolution, this conception will find the moving force behind the evolutionary advance in invisible morphological fields of force, which bend the arc of growth towards wholeness formations. So again, thinking about bioelectricity and social physics, morphological fields of force, and then how is that force applied? Is that applied through, through distributed ledger technology. And and I think that the mechanistic version of evolution, like that's the neo-Darwinian, but I think really more and more what we're gonna be talking about is Lamarckian evolution, where acquired traits are carried forward. Starting with the most elementary configurations, those in which electrical units are organized in atoms, we find these guiding fields moving towards higher dynamic organizations, which culminate in a human brain with its currents of thought emerging from neural configurations of indescribable complexity. Such a theory might well build on the speculations of Dr. R.M. Buck, who in his book On Man's Moral Nature surmised that the basic emotions of man are four fear and hate, faith and love, while in the interplay of these emotions lies the secret of man's moral nature. This theory, formulated quite some time before the newer theories of endocrinology, would accept as a fact that there is an inner bond of causality between the sympathetic nervous system, the internal secretions, and the individual character. For us, however, the most interesting feature of Dr. Buck's view is the implication that the moral nature, as it develops Uh, and modifies the functional pattern of the nervous system through enhancement of emotions of love and faith, as opposed to fear and hate. So that those who have strong moral natures are the type likely to experience the mutation of illumination and carry forward the psychic revolution of the human mind. Wow. That's pretty intense. I'm just going to like read this again. So they're talking about, okay, so such a theory might well build on the speculations of Dr. R.M. Buck, who in his book on man's moral nature surmised that the basic emotions of man are four, fear and hate, faith and love, while in the interplay of these emotions lies the secret of man's moral nature. This theory formulated quite some time before the newer theories of endocrinology would accept as a fact that there is an inner bond of causality between the sympathetic nervous system, the internal secretions, and the individual's character. For us, however, the most interesting feature of Dr. Buck's view is the implication that the moral nature as it develops modifies the functional pattern of the nervous system through enhancement of the emotions of love and faith, as opposed to fear and hate so that those who have a strong moral natures are the type likely to experience the mutation of illumination and carry forward the psychic revolution of the human mind. So I just want to think about that for a second. Um, like the more, the morality, um, huh, It's interesting here. Let me, let me pull up. Let me, uh, let me see, oh, it's in the descent. Okay, so I'm still on the right map. Okay, so we're leaving Oliver Riser. we're going up to Oliver Goodenough. Um, so it's interesting because like the morality, I've seen stuff and I think I mentioned it last time that the environmental social governance, I, I think is going to go beyond just ESG and move towards a moral economy. And th- this guy, uh, Oliver Goodenough, he, he, um, he's married to, to uh, a woman, Allison Clarkson, who is the majority leader in the US Senate, uh, not the US Senate, the state Senate in Vermont. Uh, he was a, a, a lawyer. I believe that he actually got his uh, degree at Penn, his JD at Penn. Um, and he might have been in entertainment law. Uh, but he is like a major advocate of this idea of the moral market. And, and what was kind of concerning for me is that like, he was linking together morality and neuroscience and evolution studies, which I had never seen those things put together before until I just read this. Like I literally just read this. It's kind of interesting. And so his, um, so and they were part of the Law Lab. And again, the Law Lab, so this his co-director of the Law Lab was John Klippinger, uh, who worked with Sandy Pentland over at the MIT Media Lab. And this open mustard seed platform is uh, early digital identity, an early digital identity from 2013 format with this thing called the Trusted Compute Cell. So Sandy Pentland is all about social dynamics. John Clippinger is sort of putting together Web3 tokenization. He's working with uh, Good Enough at this law lab at the Berkman Klein Center for the Internet of Harvard. That was pretty much funded by the Kauffman Foundation, and the Kauffman Foundation is behind the Human Capital Impact Finance Market. And you know, and he is bringing together this idea of the neuroscience and morality and evolution as part of a moral market. And let me see if that actually. I'm just going to show. This is a book that he was a part of, the 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 critical roles of value in the economy. And so, what I'm hearing Riser saying is that he he literally imagines that the way in which our nervous system is managed, that people who fit what is understood as a moral character now, like that's questionable how you would qualify that because I think many. You know, it's not always clear what's moral and what's immoral given the last couple of years, but that somehow the people that are more moral or following those rules will be more inclined psychically to be part of this unitary consciousness. And so in that respect, whether or not you believe that you can come up with just one program of what morality looks like, this idea of wedding it into the economy is really important. Let me see if I can find. So, yeah, so this is the other thing. This guy, Robert Hartman. So I haven't really written up Robert Hartman yet, but he actually, he was connected to the Foundation for Integrated Education. And ultimately, Riser was part of this with Fritz Kunst and Julius Stolman and, and Hartman was a member of that. And so this is an institute that he founded. It's actually... In um, in in Tennessee, it, it's in uh, Knoxville, so it's very near. I think UT Knoxville is where he was affiliated with Hartman. He was a professor there, and he was about value systems, and and in fact, he was essentially the guy who was like listed at like the structure of values, scientific axiology, and the the freedom to live. His name wasn't originally Hartman. It was something else. He was a Jewish Catholic guy who left in the lead up to World War II and he had to, he picked a new name and he actually chose the name Hartman. And again, Hart, it's HART, but he picked that name and he's known as the father of profit sharing and the 401k. And so this idea of harnessing markets into um, into a morality, right? Harnessing the financial markets, harnessing this idea that you will have money to live after you retire your 401k into a market that's linked to morality, like it never would have occurred to me before that um, it was going to be linked to psychical aspects. Like that's, um, that's just really interesting to me. Um, And, and, you know, I do remember value theory. So it is, uh, let's see, one of the two living authorities on value theory. Uh, and he created this this institute for applied axiology, uh, which is about applying values and, and value systems and morality. It's not value as in money, it's value as in being a moral person, the knowledge of good, being a good person. Um, so it's, it's kind of blowing my mind right now just to sort of imagine um, that like Hartman and the value theory and the 401k and the profit sharing could be linked into like a larger psychical program. Although, you know, we shouldn't be totally shocked by that because, um, you know, kunst, you know, with the theosophy and stuff like psychical research was really central to all of this. Um, but yeah, interesting Robert Hartman. Okay. so. So in this matter, we establish contact with the contemporary thesis of Julian Huxley that the channel of evolution is now through man and in man through the further development of supra physical faculties. And so that's again that we're going back to protocol labs, right? They want to give us superpowers. Everybody, everybody, superpowers. Um, So this line of speculation lends support to the view that an individual may be able to refine his own physical organism to the point of gaining a new freedom. This theory of self-evolutionary development towards a freedom which results from the individual quote taking thought thereby bringing new patterns of electrical action currents into existence poses some interesting questions. Now again that's getting back to the bioelectricity right? Can an individual deliberately, by taking thought, coerce the evolution of his own nervous system towards the elaboration of some more readily responsive cells? Can a man's mind create through these fields of influence levels or types of brain cells with their own substance and thereby set in motion approximations in the outer world of that underlying self-generated pattern? Could the collective minds of human individuals create a new society, mold their own collective future, and bring us into being counterparts of the inner worlds uh, of all of us? Wow. So So that's about focus. And, you know, the folks at Foundation for Integrated Education way back, they were very much interested, you know, again, Kunst was a theosophist. He started off in Adyar. So they were very focused on India and uh, meditation and meditative practice. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to pop back over to the Pegasus Park. and just, again, touch on, think about all of the health people who are selling selling everybody on wearables, right? Like biofeedback devices. So, you know, the brain training, it's the neurofeedback, right? It's the EEGs, uh, it's the heart Math Institute, um, all of that stuff that's coming, and the wearables. And because they want entrainment, they want mind, heart entrainment. And so I just wanna sort of pull, this is, um, in the Dallas map, um, Capital One has, I, I don't know if it's their headquarters, but they're, they're a major office in Plano, uh, north of Dallas. Uh, Capital One, George Overholtzer here, he was one of the key people in setting up impact finance early on through the um, Nonprofit Finance Fund and later Third Sector Capital Partners. Uh, in North Dallas, they had a summer camp uh, called, uh, math core. And so again, these are often, you know, promoted for, you know, kids, you know, disadvantaged kids, right? Ki- poor kids in public school get to go to summer math cap at, camp at capital one. Now, capital one in Plano is doing a whole lot of AI. And, you know, I'll just point out that a lot of these are, you know, children of color and, and they've got here, you can see these brainwave headbands on them. All right. So you can you can see what they have on their head it is one of these EEG devices and what they're doing uh, let's see you can see in this one they're looking at a screen and they're supposed to be making art with their mind um, so they're they've got this on and they're they're going to make art and t- I mean to me this seems like a lot of like can you elaborate can you use your mind Uh, to evolve your own nervous system, which is kind of what this feedback is, right? Like you're concentrating and you're, you're changing your neurological system, right? They, they say it's about making art, but really is actually about controlling these kids, uh, brain, brainwave patterns. And, uh, it's called brain tone. And that's the company is brain tone art. I think the person who actually set it up, had a background from the U S air force. And they're saying like, create art from your brain. And it's, it's almost, let me see what the gallery. So these are some of the the art artistic images that you put on the EEG headband, and then you make art with your mind. And this is what, you know, and, and then it gets print out with a QR code. And so my thought is in this is that once they refine these technologies and, you know, we go back to thinking about the NVIDIA, um, let me see. I'm, I'm going to play this Nvidia clip because uh, I just think it's really important. I played it. I played it before. Uh, but then we have- oh no, sorry. I I, don't, I can't play that one. It's it's the wrong one. But they they want you to make art with your brain. They want to put a QR code on it. I think in the future this will be like the a like children having an AI assistant for their imagination, and that that will be used to build the metaverse. And the idea of having a QR code printed out on the art means that you would have credit, right? Like there would be a credit assignment. And so, um, you know, the the credit that happens like in, in the future for your intellectual property of your contributions to the metaverse, like that, that would be a payment system. And so, okay, so we've got brain tone. It's linked to, let's see, I, let me see if they have a picture of the Oh, I guess it's just, yeah, it has a QR code. And NeuroSky are the devices. And so these are also with, uh, they're biometrically enabled, look, so biosensor solutions, these are all of the different kinds of things they're using them for, like virtual reality, meditation, mental effort, uh, health related, and and they've got these tiny biosensors, um, and oh, look, you can sleep with them on. You can track your sleep. You can be in virtual reality. You can track your wellness. Uh, here, to, you know, clock in with your telemedicine. Uh, that's what the NeuroSky um, is about. And then, uh, sorry. And then they've got uh, uh, the investors in this include SoftBank, uh, they had a partnership with Mattel. Uh, so Mattel, uh, is, is connected to the, the, this, uh, EEG program and, you know, it's also used for neuromarketing, right? And then actually Berkeley, uh, their school of information used, used it for a research study where it was actually your login, (laughs) The computer can identify you by your thoughts, and you would have that the headset there, and there these are just consumer grade EEG devices. And instead of remembering your password, you would just have a certain thing that you would think about, and so like that's how it would go with your your the brain entrainment. And so anyway, I just wanted to point this out with Capital One because it's again. It's part of, you know, it's linked in with the collective impact. Um, You know, Dallas is working, like, very deeply, uh, the United Way. And it's all, you know, good and social justice and happy, happy, right, that we're mining, uh, you know, inner-city kids uh, for their brainwaves in this gamified atmosphere to make art, when it's not really about that. It's about getting them to start to participate in these executive function mind-control projects. So... Okay. So back, back to stuff. All right. Super physical. That is fascinating. Okay. Uh, all right. Could the collective minds of humans create a new society, mold their own collective future and bring into being counterparts of inner worlds of all of us. So remember, I just said about the AI assistant for kids, their imaginary worlds would go into AI. And that's what he's saying. Would we have a collective future and bring our inner worlds to everyone? And that's, that's it. That's it. Exactly. Can we, through the potency of an organismic and emergent sociality set in motion, the action currents by means of which new political structures would come into objective being? So new political structures, that's, I think, part of this, again, a global governance e-government protocol. And a lot of it is going to be based on consensus. And that's that's the thing I, I want to point out with like uh, Wilbur being in Denver and having this overlap of the spiral dynamics with the transpartisan movement. The transpartisans are all about consensus because they're like, okay, so you can be from different political parties, but we're going to find common ground and we're going to agree to things. Um, and so let's find our common ground. And I think the process for finding the common ground will probably be through some sort of uh, app type system. So let me... Let me just. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that over again for a sec, and I just want to bring up the Wilbur part because they've so we're back to the the integral theory stuff, and I want to point out that so here we've got Rob Smith, the nanotech guy from Reno who hangs out with Ben Gertzel talking about AI and love. Um, And he was also with the IONS, the Noetic Sciences Lab. And um, so one of the spin-outs that they have was this something called the Institute of Applied Meta-Theory. So everything, like it's so jargony. Like I wouldn't take it that seriously, except for like, I don't know, one of these people who's involved in the you know, Institute for Integral Wisdom is some sort of like really slick like organizational coach, but they said that he was involved with like coaching Mark Benioff at Salesforce and also Ray Dalio of, of uh, Bridgewater. So like, I guess you kind of have to take it seriously even though it just seems so bogus, but so they have this Institute for Applied Meta Theory. And um, one of the things that they're working on was like a crypto token for a transformational movement. Now this is based like in Boulder. So again, Colorado is the blockchain central place right so they want to use uh co- cooperative economic communities for crypto tokens for social movements and you know I keep saying I feel like like the crassness of the crypto market is being intentionally built up to back back out into this cooperative economics right it's this FTXs of the world that get propped up. Um, And the, you know, bored ape or whatever NFTs that get propped up and then eventually they'll they'll get it back and say, well, you know, this distributed ledger technology is simply a tool and we can use it for good. Um, And and if we're going to use it for good, we would have crypto tokens for cooperative economics. And then uh, this guy. So they actually have an integral social sector initiative led by this guy, Josh, Josh Leonard, who came out of the YMCA. And the YMCA is very much connected to the collective impact space. So, um, you know, they're looking at integrating very likely social impact finance um, into this uh, into this space. And it, so it's connected to like tokenomics. So Okay. So, oh, Josh Leonard previously. So here, here, here's Josh. He's a seasonal seasoned social impact organizational leader with lots of expertise and his background is, uh, with the YMCA of San Francisco, no less, right? So a lot of the out of school time stuff and probably the health and wellness stuff will be coming out of the Y's. And then th- he was part of this Institute for Cultural Evolution. Again, Riser keeps talking about the evolutionary part. And um, so I can't help but think that this is going to be like consensus, um, this idea of cultural evolution they're working on this. is in Boulder. Our developmental approach to politics. Invitations to all sides. Like the daily evolver. Like they're going to evolve themselves through consensus-based tokenomics. I think. And and, and again, you know, when we think about, you know, Ethereum, uh, Lubin, you know, his thing is consensus. I don't. I don't know. Let me see if I can get the the other one up here. And let me uh, the token engineer. Yeah. The token. Yeah. Let me just zoom into consensus so you can sort of orient. All right. So, yeah, so we've got the Ethereum foundation here and Joseph Lubin, you know, uh, you know, was among the co-founders with Buterin. And so this is, this is the stuff that's mediating the real world interface is, um, is that the smart contract layer right and but consensus is a really central part of this and it's through this enterprise ethereum alliance uh, their founding members and you know they've got the play to earn uh, decentralized apps you've got the crypto wallets you have uh, De- decentralized app development. You've got uh, blockchain as a service, digital asset supply chain monitoring. Um, you know they're, they're, they're either acquired or funding all of these things, data analytics platforms, uh, quorums, uh, code DeFi, decentralized finance. Uh, they incubated Gnosis. Remember, I, t- I mentioned about Gnosis before, uh, prediction markets, and and so all of this stuff related. This uh, Shruti Apia worked as, as a research uh, researcher for them, and she was involved with Internet of uh, Input Output Hong Kong and the Santa Fe Institute on artificial economies. So all of this stuff is based on token engineering and consensus. And so like when I when I see things like collective uh, social impact coordination, uh, crypto tokens. I'm feeling like it's gonna definitely have to be consensus. And then the, the other aspect of the consensus thing is, let me just pull up this other one, um, is the sociocracy. And I mentioned that a couple times, but that sort of dates back to this Quaker um, stuff. And it's going to be connected to civic tech. Oh, not sociogram, sociocracy. Sociocracy, yeah. Governance by collective decision making. So we've got this over here, and it's linked to Gerhard Endenberg, who was a Dutch engineer uh, and who was a Quaker. And so sociocracy was this way of like coming to consensus. And I've often felt like essentially, you know, the Quakers are kind of, you know, playing a key role in all of this. But this idea of consensus making through tokens (coughs) um, is. You know, I can totally see civic tech and apps and e-government being meshed into sociocracy and being framed as collectives. So, um, anyway, I just wanted to sort of put put that all together so that we were thinking about the consensus stuff. Um, all right, let me go back. Um, right, and okay, so. All right, so can the individuals, you know, change up their brains to, to, you know, can, we, can they create the new society? All right, I'm just looking to, okay, pardon me if I repeat on some of this. Could the collective minds of human individuals create a new society, mold their own collective future, and bring into being counterparts of the inner worlds? Yeah, so that's the AI. Um, can we, through the potency of an organismic and emergent sociality set in motion and action currents by means of which new political structures would come into objective being? So I feel like that's it. Like this idea of, uh, transpartisan sociocracy consensus and civic tech apps. Uh, if indeed biological evolution is anticipatory, does the immediate future already exist in potentiality on a subjective level? Um, and if so is the time lag between human creativity on the subjective level and the objective world merely the lag between the pattern world of world of thought the guiding fields and the physical world moreover if this be so does the brain evolve physically into more responsive cells in order to cut down the inertia between patterns of thought and material configurations an inertia which now constitutes? the basis for the lack of alignment between subjective and objectives worlds so that the ideal thinker when he arrives will be up to date to the extent that for him, there will be a synchronization between the subjective and objective worlds. So I guess that's sort of this idea of like using your mind to make your reality. I don't know exactly how that would work. I mean, I mean, I know there are people who practice this sort of mindfulness, but um, seems kind of out there, but you know, you know. I never know. Like, I'm, I, I mean, at this point, I, I don't put anything out of the range of possibility. Finally, it should be possible to build up a kind of world mind out of fields of influence correlated with individual human brains, produce in short a world sensorium for the global civilization we suppose is in progress of emerging from the earth organism. Is it possible that this planetary government already exists as a subjective reality in the collective idealism of an upward striving humanity, which is even now in the progress of precipitating its objective counterpart. Judging by the pleasure creative personalities have testified to when their work achieves some measure of universality, can we perhaps already sense the wider world consciousness being generated by men of goodwill who work and plan for a universal humanity? And I would just say at this point, it's all these hedge fund people making bets. So I'm just not really seeing them as men of goodwill, but okay. Is it possible that the subjective planetary humanism, the field of influence of liberated minds has already been so integrated with the spearheads of developed individuals in our society that it has so to speak an embryonic embodiment. And I would say like this idea of liberated minds, like where are the liberated minds? I can't see like, I don't feel like there are very many minds that are liberated i feel like we're really like most minds are really highly highly controlled if this subjective planetary government even now provides a kind of mental fetus for a coming universal civilization how long will it be before this matured global humanism will be ushered in in that day when it has arrived should we not celebrate the occasion with a kind of coronation ceremony for planetary democracy again the, the coronation stuff kills me right Does the coming president of the Federation of Friendly Nations or whoever it is who will personalize the peak of human evolution already have his station in the social world ready to head the federation when the days of peace and social healing have done their work? Who will it be? And then, and I have to say, I put in, I don't know if you can see, I I put in, I said, Elon Musk, LOL, (laughs) question mark. Who will it be? The head of the friendly Federation. Someone will, Someone still relatively unknown, whoever it will be. He is probably someone he, right? Uh, we have at least heard of perhaps someone whose voice is familiar, whose record and ideals are known to us. In any case, many of the lesser ranks of leaders, the world cabinet, the global organizers are living and working with us. Now, mature men and women experienced each in his own field and ready to take his place in the adventure. Here in the subjective idealism of a group with universal interest, working out the form of a philosophical viewpoint as a basis for long-term planning, we already have the beginnings of a new world government. The future is a matter of recognizing these groups and their functions. Will the slow and steady steps of evolving men We march on from the subjective hierarchy, the isolated and advanced individuals who for long generations have held the vision of a united world to the objective actualized federation of ministries, which will provide leadership and authority. Let me see how long this is. This is, oh, okay. There's one more section. All right. I can do this. Problems and plans. Many problems will arise in the course of our investigation. Any such broad project dealing with economic, political, educational, and ideological basis for world unification is not likely at the outset to provide satisfactory answers to the many problems set for it. Now, I will say, like, if you look at that scope, that's the UN SDGs, right? Like economic, political, educational, and ideological. They don't like necessarily have health in there, but let, that that's pretty much the scope of it. A complete treatment will, will present us with a major problem of semantics. How, if humanity is to acquire an organismic unity, can we human beings learn to communicate with each other across the barriers of race, nation, religion, language, and the rest, and speak to each other in friendliness? Understanding one another is not merely an intellectual matter, a cortical function. It is also a matter of being able to feel with one another. And how shall we learn to do that? Now, I would say this is actually kind of interesting, like the feel with part, because like the the UN has been working on virtual reality like for empathy. Like that's what they're actually really working on is empathetic, like the feeling of empathy is really important to them. It's even like a social impact market. Like why would you create a virtual reality of a refugee camp and have people walk through it or create virtual realities of people being traumatized and then put you in it so that you can empathize, it's actually building that like feeling in, like your ability to project your feeling into things. So I think that that's really important, this idea of feeling and then like, they're looking for a nonverbal means of communic- energetic communication. And how shall we learn to do that? Okay. Another important problem is the ideological problem of tolerance raised by regionalism or the cultural diversity of peoples. How much variability of viewpoint may we tolerate in the world of tomorrow? I'm just going to repeat that. How much variability of viewpoint may we tolerate in the world of tomorrow? And so I would say like that has everything to do with fake news and ghosting and deplatforming and, you know, control, like lack of freedom of speech because they don't actually want there to be very much variability in how you think. This is a difficult question, and yet it's obvious that the cultural diversity of now independent groups must give way to some more inclusive world federation through which men of goodwill uh, may plan the patterns of intercourse and meaning for the universal community, right? So, like, right. (laughs) I mean, essentially they want a homogenous world, which is to me, like that's anathema. Like we're, we're our own beings. Like we should be celebrating, like that's the irony is that the people who are going to pull this off are the people who are the most about diversity and identity politics. It's ridiculous. There is no question about it. The world is going to change. And if we want to control and guide that change, we must engage in the mental anticipatory experimentation with the kinds of reforms we shall have to initiate in our programs of reconstruction. To bring about a better world, we need plans. Just as an architect or an engineer needs a plan, so those who are rebuilding our world need plans. Sound structures are not built without sound theories. The building of a social structure, no less than the application of scientific method in an airplane design, involves some experimentation. So we need plans for a better world. We need a mental fetus to guide the embryological development of our emerging world organism. To envisage such an ideological form is an important matter. To put it to practical test is also important. In the remaining paragraph of this chapter, we shall outline this theoretical framework of scientific humanism, which we have dared to hope may serve as the mental fetus for the new world. Following this in subsequent chapters, we shall suggest some practical applications of the theory. And so I'm, I'm gonna take a second just to see if I can find this. Um, this image, because I've been working on sort of trying to navigate this stuff with uh, the artificial morphogenesis. And let me just do, 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 do media. I'm trying, I have like so many of these things that I've been putting in programmable architectures. I think this might be it. Let me see What? It's blocked? How can you block my own stuff? That doesn't really make any sense. Oh, shoot. Well, I guess I can't get to it. Darn it. It's this... Huh. Blocked by client. Well, I'm not sure what that's about. All right. Well, I give up. This. But anyway, uh, Rene Dorsat. Uh, essentially what they were talking about was of this, when, when they're talking about architecture and needing a plan, uh, in this artificial morphogenesis, what they're imagining is essentially this bottom up, like programmable matter and that it will be organic and there will be certain rules. So like this idea of biomimicry or bio-inspired design that they will, have things self build. And so they actually talk a lot about this idea of having a, um, like not having an architect, like the architect doesn't actually lay out all the parts with a specific plan. It says what the outcome is, like what, what is needed, and then some general parameters. And then the thing like makes itself up like magic. I mean, that that, that's actually so it's interesting when he's talking about needing an architect and needing a, a plan for reconstruction is everything that I'm seeing now is that they're planning for it to be distributed and bottom up. Okay. A manifesto of scientific humanism. Today, the world needs desperately a theory to serve as an underpinning for a new way of thinking and living. Convinced that what is required is a modernized cosmology, which places humanity within the framework and focus of the planetary context, we present the following propositions as a statement of the philosophy of scientific humanism. One, man is a natural creature living in a natural universe doesn't seem like that's where things are going. He has made his appearance, however, not through chance or by accident, but contrary to obsolete materialistic theories, the vast stellar universe provides the fitting backdrop to the drama of a planetary evolution. As the tip end of biological evolution up to date, man has emerged from the creatures who adapt themselves to nature and become self-directing agents that recreate that nature to serve the needs of his own self-evolution. And so I would say this idea of like a self-directing agent that recreates nature to serve the needs of his evolution is very much about this like synthetic biology, biotechnology, bioreactor, like deglobalization framing that we're getting. Is that like you can just take the molecules of nature and remake them to whatever you need because we're the supreme beings who are evolving into being godlike or something. From now on, we must become more planetistic in our thinking. There are in the world, not gods and men, masters and slaves, but human beings in various stages of development, all born of the earth organism. Accordingly, men must draw their strength from the untold resources of our planet. Right? So that's extractivism. The invigorating rhythms of the seasons, the vibrant zest of the Northlands, the ecstasy of the fertile prairies and the lush familiarity of the tropics, the shimmery expanses of the inland waters, the cadence of the seven seas, and the configurations of the drifting continents. Three, scientific humanism, however, is not exclusively earthbound in its survey. If, as planetism believes, the earth vibrates in our present geopolitical relationships, it is no less true that the steaming trail of protoplasm, which has its birthing in the sea below, has climbed into the sky above. Thus, the future, no less than the past, exerts its compulsions upon the developing present. The fabric of living tissue, cross-webbed as it is with planetary history, does not reach its final pinnacle of evolution in the present psychozoic age of man. Psychozoic. Yeah, psychozoic age of man. The last half of the drama still remains to be written, and man himself now writes the play in which he is at once author, actor, and producer. And I would say like, this goes back to this part with, um, Huxley second. I just want to, um, that this idea of, oh no, that's not it. Sorry. Is it decent? Oh, there was two. I think there's two Huxleys in here. yeah, it's up this way, that like man is the sole curator of evolution in the universe, like that, that we are in charge of all the stuff. And gosh, I've, I've, I thought that this was the, like the sole arbiter of the universe that, that we, we had it all under control. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little bit frustrated. I'm not finding this part of the Oh, I guess it's, it's in here, the purpose and philosophy. Yeah. So this was, this was Julian Huxley. The evolutionary progress we find is directed towards an increase of the characteristics. Um, And then it goes on. Furthermore, he is not merely the sole heir of past evolutionary progress, but the sole trustee for any that may be achieved in the future. From the evolutionary point of view, the destiny of man must maybe summed up simply, it is to realize the maximum amount of progress in the minimum amount of time. And that that's what was happening through UNESCO. And, you know, I feel like that that is very much on target, but is in is contrast to, um, like the philosophies of say a John Trudell, uh, about being good relatives or Robin wall Kimmerer right that that man is not at the pinnacle and actually we we should have some humbleness um, uh, because we don't know all of the things right but but these people starting with all you know not necessarily starting with Oliver riser but you know going all the way back uh, that you know they've they've planned that we're going to be the ones running the evolutionary train okay. Uh sorry okay and i think that this idea of climbing into the sky like that's the that's space travel that's barbara marx hubbard pioneering along the frontiers of social change comes natural to the scientific humanist accordingly he offers the impetus of his movement as one spearhead of social advance the scientific humanist is committed to the challenging adventure of being ever more globalistic of becoming the time binder that's interesting the time as well as the space conqueror of our planet But he realizes that the symphony of continents cannot be a one race or one nation recording. Thus far, only a few overtones have been caught. Only a few themes have been written. And this is interesting going back to the musical stuff, right? In the writing of new scores and even the simplest melodies, we have to face factors and issues which disturb old habits of thought and ancient evaluations. More attention must be given to technique for global harmonies require global notation. And again, I think it is this notation like what they're looking for is a code of social evolution, a code of interaction of life to program life from like the nano level to the population level like and it is a grammar and it is a code or an annotation. And it is no longer permissible to regard global issues from individualistic frameworks. The limited perspectives of social isolationists, whether in business, politics, or religion, are manifestations of cultural introversion. The scientific humanist is a student of semantics concerned with communication across the world whole. And again, linguistics is really central here. It's important to look at the computational linguists and people like Noam Chomsky because they're very central to the AI and the computing. Um, He is trying to discover how much each man may speak to all men in friendliness. We now realize that our misunderstandings frequently have a linguistic basis, which semantic analysis may clear up. It is one aim of scientific humanism to formulate a common semantic platform for human understanding and cooperation. Scientific method is simply democracy in thinking and in action. Therefore scientific humanism frankly accepts the social responsibility of scientific research and social communication of knowledge." And like, you know, I'm thinking like they were imagining it would be Esperanto or something, but now it's just like automated language processing. Scientific control of nature has reached a stage where our society could, if it were properly organized, produce enough food, shelter, clothing, and medicine for all mankind. Economic security is not a vain dream if we organize for an economy of plenty. Cynicism, defeatism, and escapism result from an inadequate grasp of the vast potentialities of social reform when guided by social intelligence. And So I think, again, the social reform, we have to think back to Bentham, right? So uh, let me just revisit Bentham here. Uh, uh, Wait a minute, one sec. down here. So we've got the Panopticon workhouses. We've got Jeremy Bentham, you know, he worked with Edwin Chadwick on the Poor Laws and they worked on oh sorry, I forgot uh, move it over. Sorry, so we've got we've got Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, we have uh, Edwin Chadwick. Uh, and he was working on the poor laws and contracts, actually working on franchise bidding contracts for public services, which is very much relevant to the public private partnerships, working on the poor law where they were optimizing everything for the most happiness for the most people, but then they would have these panopticons. Um, where they would even evolve children and that the play of the children would be harnessed into the machine. So they would like run up and down this thing called a sinking stage. Um, and their their play would be harnessed for the industrial power system. And so, you know, when we're talking about the social reform measures, and um, that's that, like, we have to be really cautious because in retrospect, things that they thought we're reforming. We're really pretty terrible. Um, and you know, again, engineering for plenty. I'm just gonna say it. It's, it has a lot to do with the coordination mechanism. And so, what the free market people would say is there's like a market failure. There's a communication and a coordination failure. And all we need to do is uh, coordinate it better. And then that coordination shall be done through the cybernetic circuits, which is the distributed ledger. Okay. Scientific control of nature has reached a stage where our society could, if it were properly. Oh, so, oh, sorry. I've already done this. So economy of plenty. Um, okay. Yeah. And social intelligence. Oh, and this was the other thing that I wanted to include. Um, so So the coordination needs lots of data, right? And so within this transpartisan movement, um, two of the kind of the key figureheads, like representing alt-right and alt-left, were Cynthia McKinney, so she was representing the peace side, and Robert David Steele, who was representing uh, the alt-right side. And um, I actually came across this kind of wild uh, slide share. Um, Oh, shoot. Here, I keep forgetting to... go back. Okay. So, so here we go. So we have the transpartisan movement here. Um, and then we've got, uh, Cynthia McKinney and we have, uh, Robert, uh, David Steele who did that arise tour. And he was a major advocate of open source intelligence. Um, now it's, it's quite interesting because I found a, um, Essentially, it was a slide share. It was old. It was from 2007. And like nobody else could open it. So I saved a bunch of the slides off of it. It was about 55 slides. I saved about half. Um, But because actually reading between the lines, it was really helpful to sort of understand his position on open source. And, you know, I'm sure many people already know, but he uh, he was a, 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 he called himself a recovering CIA spy. And not only just any spy, but he was working on advanced IT and AI for the CIA. And he created the US Marine Corps Intelligence Command. So like, you know, I, I don't know how all this fits into this imagined like resistance program, um, or like who would get on a bus tour with someone who has sort of this background. And he, he was very close, he wanted to run everything through uh, Amazon. So he wanted to set up a global intelligence network an open source agency to have citizen centered governance on cell phones. Now, remember, this is 2007. Um, He wanted to have reforms where open source intelligence was 80 to 90% of the answer. And he wanted to create a smart nation. But it's not going to be of by and for the people, it will be of by and for the machine of, of, of AI. And so, you know, I think it's really important to imagine that in this world of decentralized bottom up organizing, they need tons of data. It needs to be re- free flowing, it can't be siloed. And so, in this way, like the surveillance privacy narratives, ironically, are driving us into the interoperability that will interface with the open source, I think, like, I don't really believe that so much of our data is going to be protected. They want it to be interoperable. And then they, they want to be able to query on it. And And this is another one of the images that he uses, like talking about everything, open everything, have all the, all the images, digital images, di- digital language translation, digital documents, graphics, um, everything available for the sentiment analysis, for the visual analysis, for the pattern recognition that, that, you know, that is what was coming of everything being open. Um, and it's, they would call for everything to be open because we need it to be coordinated. If we were only coordinated, we would have enough for everyone, right? Because of it's a market failure scenario. And so like, I agree that things are totally out of whack and need, you know, like a significant tending to, right? Like things need to be in, you know, my opinion, like people's needs do need to be met. I don't think it should be a UBI scenario. Um, and I don't think it should be by feeding all of our open source analytics to AI. But I think that this idea of understanding if we were simply in better control of our society, we could do all the things I, I, that hasn't addressed the power dynamic, that hasn't addressed that at all. So, um, okay, all right. Um, Human nature is characterized by wide flexibility and this provides a plastic basis for social progress. Again, think bottom up. Um, Since scientific laws are tentative statements, useful only so long as they enable us to describe and predict within an existing framework of human experience, we should not be bound too rigidly by established notions of what is considered possible or impossible. Man is a real agent, again that word agent, in determining the course of events. The future of our earth will be decided in part by the role in which humanity is to play in the remaining acts of this and yet incomplete, as yet incomplete drama. Present difficulties are surmountable, but the broad background of social causation is worldwide in scope, and no simple remedy will cure all of our ills if and when science accepts a greater measure of responsibility for controlling the social impact of new technologies and inventions, then by the humanized application of scientific methods and results, it will be possible to guarantee peace and security to everyone. And again, that's we, right? That is the novel we, the read aloud that I did the last time, Zamgiatin, right? That they, a guaranteed peace, a guaranteed security, but is it, is it like, beware of what you ask for, But to accomplish this requires fundamental changes in our political and economic systems, which is exactly what I've been talking about. This means within a more limited area that the problems of labor and capital, mass unemployment and the like must be solved in terms of human welfare rather than by reference to the profit motive. And again, so that's where we're coming back to impact finance, right? And the circular economy and donut economics is this exact narrative is being rolled out now, right? And, and I, again, I'm not saying that the conditions are inaccurate. That's an inaccurate assessment, but they've already got all of the tools in place, and these are the tools that are were put in place by the hedge fund investors. And then ultimately, it's not going to be about money. It's going to be about steering data and doing the digital analytics towards emergence, because the people who are the multi multi multi-billionaires already, like having a few more billion isn't gonna do that much more for them. What they're after is whatever this imagined global computer computational thing is going to get them, like to be gods or creators, like using our psychic and our emotional capabilities. Okay. Okay, I'm just, I'm sorry. So, okay, and on a broader scale, this calls for new ideas about money, okay? New ideas about money, guys. International trade, debts, and the rest. Indeed, global thinking applied to the construction of a new international economic political structure is most essential, okay? An international economic political structure. And again, remember, this is right at the time that the UN was coming online. Seven, in the coming planetary civilization, those religions that obstruct social advance must be subordinated. All right. So the religions must be subordinated. In the culture of planetary democracy, the various authoritarian religions will be obsolete, but quote, religious spirit through a renaissance of awe and reverence will constitute a wholesome ingredient of the universal synthesis. So that's the ecstasis. That is the this idea of the ecstatic that is disconnected from any institution like and actually you know this is something that I was just listening to you know what let me I want to I'm going to pull this one up too give me a give me a second Uh, sorry I didn't okay I want to pull this one up I just posted this today so this is you know I keep mentioning stealing fire I added a clip from uh Jamie Wheel. Manson family or. Okay. And so, you know, Danny Katz had mentioned to me this book, and I'm really grateful. And she's like, he promotes ethical cults. Okay. So these are the people who are behind this idea of pushing the flow state, ego death, entering into altered states of consciousness for collective good benefit. And, you know, he's framing this as, as an ethical cult. Like I would say, you know, the other aspect of this integral with wisdom and this person Gaffney was there were lots of allegations about sexual impropriety with youth, underage people, among others. Um, and so it's generally understood that like a lot of these like intentional communities get really messed up, right? And so if you imagine a future where, you know, they're saying, look, the building is the computer. The building is the computer. Well, think about what that means for a, we work, right? A co-living, co-working, co-learning space, right? You create a building that's a computer, and then you put people in it with cameras, and then you create an engineered social condition with, um, you know, printable psychedelic drugs and some expectation of neurofeedback and put certain people in charge. Like, when you're asking for ethical cults, I think it's very, very, very unlikely that, that that's what you're actually going to get. So I'm going to just play this clip now. It, this one is not too long; it's three minutes.
3: It's in family or the Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid side, but from you know religious studies or anthropology, a cult is literally just a community of practice um, bonded together around some shared ep- epiphanic, you know, or revelatory experience. Basically, it's any religious group that doesn't yet that is not yet state sanctioned is a cult. So the question is, is we know there are dysfunctional ones. We know there are lots and lots of unethical cults, particularly where leaders hijack um, money, power, sexuality, and control and you may pick, pick any two and you're done, you know? So the question is, is rather than steering away from that and, as, and, and saying that won't happen or it shouldn't happen or, or um, that's not what we're doing, steer into it and say, okay, if we're gonna build vibrant communities of practice, how do we build ethical cults? And, and what I would imagine, and, and that's clearly a conversation for us all to figure out, but what I would imagine is that, you know, we, we've seen this movie before, we know how this goes badly wrong. And we've had about a half century of you know, Eastern hierarchical lineage traditions getting buggered up and bastardized and imported into the West and, and varying kind of gurus with feet of clay. Stepping up to lead children's crusades, you know that all just go off the cliff. And so the question would be: If we're trying to build ethical cults, a you know, are they experimental and experiential, so that there is no dogma or doctrine to buy into? Are they decentralized, so that people maintain their own common sense, their own judgment, and their own agency? And and are they um, pointed towards? I would hope some sort of social good or or action and 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 can you and and all of the The known issues of dysfunctional cults. Can we just say hey? Let's just forever be vigilant about shared in groups about specific vernacular about an inside outside group mentality about Mediated access to ecstasy right and that's another kicker because almost in every single one of those situations where it does go wrong that group does something together that creates a state experience that they come to believe is exceptional, special, and quite often is doled out or tightly controlled by the person in charge. Mm-hmm. And so if we create distributed access to techniques of ecstasy, so everybody is on their own recognizance, you know, and responsible for having access to these things, integrating them and growing them, there are no fish stories to swallow. So it's it's open source meaning making. Um, and there's no sage on the stage. There's nobody up front that has lopsided uh, truth or authority claims, that maybe we have the chance. And then also, you know, a great one from a lot of religious traditions that seems to get skipped these days, is an ethic of service. Are we doing something with this? Or are we just kind of crawling up our asses and engaging in endless self-development?
0: All right, so I, I want to point out here um, that like this idea of the decentralized access to ecstasy. Right. And so they're going to remove the institutions of faith and that because, you know, clearly their idea is that they need a global culture, like they, that everything has to be part of a global culture. And then um, so then, you know, of course, you have to get rid of the world religions, but you, you need something. You need something that will keep people from falling apart. Right. And and they need to be, have a meaning, like something to add meaning to their life. So you'll have this ecstasy opportunity but it will be on your own reconnaissance, right? It will be decentralized and distributed. So if you imagine that they want to use life as some sort of computational interface that is available like on demand, right? That you can, um, that's, like you can assemble and disassemble it, right? You don't actually want people to have a lot of like connections to each other. You just want everyone as an individual unit, like everyone as an individual agent. And so I just, I think that this is really- um, So that would be my hope is that is
3: that ethical cult sorry. building is- the-
0: Sorry, I was trying to finish that up. So anyway, what I was saying is this idea of the distributed ecstasis is very similar it ev- evokes to me that the, uh, the, the authoritarian religions will be obsolete, but the religious spirit through a Renaissance of awe and reverence will have a wholesome ingredient, right? That they'll still give you something, but they'll, they'll take away the other stuff. Fragmented society must give way to integration. Again, we're integral in the past. Morality has frequently been a matter of latitude, longitude, and even altitude in the future. We must build an international morality. So an international morality, because they're after the psychic part, right? This places a heavy responsibility on philosophy which should serve as the cultural universalizer for the planetary pattern of life and again patterns patterning is what the AI is looking for is pattern the scientific humanist finds his courage and his feeling of responsibility arising from the fact that man's scientific progress is commensurate with his means and media of locomotion. He sees in retrospect that in successive order, man has conquered solids, liquids, and gases from the land, sea, and air. He moves on to more subtle media and he triumphs over space and time. Again, time. He is uniting the planet in a technological unity, which cries out for a parallel political intellectual unity. The radio, airplane, and television are conferring a mastery over distance and time. Again, with the time and further conquests of our air age global technology should be used by free people everywhere to build their own planetary civilization. And and I, I would say this idea of the radio, airplane, and television, like. Today would be, you know, the blockchain, the bioreactor and the 3D printer. Like that's how it's how it's going to, you know, that's, that would be today's equivalency to like build your own haul on with your own bioreactor, 3D printer and distributed ledger technology. Planetary humanism is w- wel- welded to the view that men become most human when they go all out for total living. Yeah, and that's this ecstasy stuff again. Thus fostering the federation of friendly peoples. Accordingly, the coming humanism first and last aims at global orientations, global symbolisms, and global techniques for doing things. He likes that. The scientific humanists uh, bend their efforts to the end that the era of the air age intercommunication shall break over the barriers of national boundaries, racial demarcations, exclusive religious frameworks, and political economic walls into a topology of human relationships that shall overshadow the old principle of exploitation and transcend the relative values of wealth, caste, race, and nation. And I would say, you know, that's one of these issues is that like People um, like they're idealistic, right? Like that's what's happening right now in the distributed ledger technology space. You've got a lot of like mostly young or young-ish, very ideal like like they're naive and they don't understand. They haven't like we haven't addressed the power dynamic of this society. Um, yet. And so if we advance with these technologies where we haven't actually addressed the power imbalances, it's not going to turn out well. But like, no one wants to believe that they're a part of something that's going to be problematic. So I would say that there is a level of idealism, but we should, like, it's, it doesn't make sense. Like, I I think, I think it's not going to turn out well, just that the the let's just move forward thinking that everything is going to be okay. Um, Okay, just one second. Uh, sorry, I just lost my track. Okay, yeah. So number 10, the next medium of man's self-evolution beyond the liquid, solid, liquid, and gas states of matter, which humanity has already mastered, lies in the domain of field physics, which shall provide the framework for the development of higher f- psychic facilities, uh, faculties. Psychic faculties. In the topological sociology of scientific humanism, we study the manner in which the life space of each individual person is transcended in the emergent dimensionality of the higher energy continuum. And this, like, this is where I would say the cosmic humanism, um, like it's all about um, physics and, you know, theoretical physics. And I have a really hard time with it. This is a much easier read than that book. Um, But, maybe someday I'll understand it. (laughs) This is not poetry. We are talking literally of a time when in which our planetary integrations occur, our whirling planet is portrayed as a rotating armature generating lines of force, which are weaving the fabric of a higher consciousness and unifying peoples into the texture of a world mind made incarnate through the world sensorium with all the human race functioning as the all enveloping planetary cortex. For us today, the most immediate object of aspiration and reverence must remain this upward striving movement of humanity as it curves over the broad horizons of our whirling globe to unify the purposes of the actions of the earth's 2 billion inhabitants. And I would say this, that that visual there, the upward striving movement as it curves around the whirling globe is very much like spiraling, right? The spiral and... Um, And that's part of, yeah, the spiral dynamic and the spintronics. As we listen to the sweet, sad music of humanity, let us catch more of the overtones of human aspiration the world round. Let us contribute to this emerging melody of mankind. Let us build that temple of humanity in which the minor chords of dissonance serve to enrich the spherical harmonics of the higher consciousness of the human race. That was a long one. Okay, so that was the end of chapter two. Ne- the next one, chapter three, doo, 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 will be morphogenetic fields of force. Um, so yeah, so that was the mental fetus. We're done with with that. So um, yeah, I guess I will call it a night. Thanks for hanging in there with me, guys. And um, with all of my technical difficulties, I'm it's still I'm still not great with the two computer thing. But um, anyway, thanks for thanks for your patience. Till the next time.